0: Welcome to Across the Line. It's another Football Friday. And today, we've got a great guest on with us um, of Ascal's fame and perhaps one of the reasons why Philippine football really got springboarded into the stratosphere and place where it is today. We've got coach Simon McMenemy joining us from Jakarta. And what a conversation it was. He was extremely open about everything, Chris. And he, he, he took us through um, everything that has transpired throughout his coaching career um, prior to getting the job from the Ascals and how he got that and the ludicrous manner in which he did and, you know, ultimately losing that job and then finding success in Indonesia and now finding himself in a position where he can pick and choose where he wants to go next. Um, What a chat. I mean, um, uh, Simon McMenry, of course, a huge figure in Philippine football and uh, to give us the, 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 the time and the... The way he was so open with us, um, it was such a, a great experience, uh, personally for me as a football fan from the Philippines.
1: It, it was really nice for him to give a different perspective on everything. Obviously, we've uh, talked a lot with the players, their experiences from, from on the field, but it was really nice to get a different perspective from him as a coach and some of the the behind-the-scenes elements that he was faced with in his roles with with the Azcals, with Moralko, and also with his time in Indonesia. So, um, yeah, really insightful, incredibly honest um, account of all of his experiences so far in his football career. And I'm sure one that a lot of our viewers and listeners will really enjoy.
0: Particularly those who are just starting out in their career paths and perhaps feeling a little unstable, unsure of themselves, listen to this episode and you will get a taste of just what kind of thoughts were going through his mind as everything as we see it as history now was unfolding during that time so Uh, We hope you enjoy this episode and if you enjoy the content that we provide here on Across the Line, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel, Uh, subscribe to us on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review the shows and of course, join us on social media via Facebook, Instagram and on Twitter. Without further ado, it's Coach Simon McMenemy here on Across the Line. Enjoy. Welcome everybody to Across the Line. It's a football Friday and we've got a real treat for you guys. For everybody who has been following Philippine football, um, particularly in the last 10 years, this individual that we have on will be a real treat for everyone. Um, pretty much started things off for us uh, here in the Philippines and with the whole explosion, we've got the great Simon McMenemy joining <laughs> us all the way from Indonesia. How's it going, Simon?
2: Very well, pal, very well. Locked down and climbing the walls, but uh, other than that, not too bad at all. Still in Jakarta? Still in Jakarta, yeah. Seeing out over here. Just thought it was best to to kind of hang on. I, I, this is our home now. This is where we live. So going back, we'd just be sharing a room with a member of family. So uh, that wouldn't be too much fun.
0: Of course, Chris Greenwich with us, as always. How's it going, Chris? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, mate. How are you?
1: Just... Uh... Trying to hang on, really. Um, my kids just burst into the room right before we came on here a second ago, shooting me with Nerf guns. So luckily we didn't <laughs> we didn't catch that one. But um no, we're we're good. I mean, I, I think we alluded to it in the previous um episode with Rob. It's, it's great that you know during this period we we're able to perhaps have some conversations with people that we wouldn't normally get uh come into the studio um using. Um Know, the, the powers of te- technology so yeah great to have Simon on the show I know he's listened to episodes before uh you know regularly messages me after uh individuals came on he even messaged me after um uh Rob's interview last week and was saying like wow it's 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 great to relive some of those some of those memories so that that was what kind of um prompted me to to reach out to him and say look let's let's get you on let's let's hear your side of the story so it's so great to have you on and uh yeah looking forward to this and I hope the viewers are and listeners are too
0: Awesome thing is we are live over Facebook as of the moment. So uh, hello to everybody who's tuning in. Um, please do send us your questions. We are very much interested in hearing what you guys would like to know uh, from Simon while we have him here on the program. Uh, keep sending them in and hopefully we'll get to all of them closer to the end of this episode. All right. Um, yeah. All right. So here we go. Um, Simon's still in Jakarta. Um, you're over there having gone through a spell that has been... Very interesting. There's been a lot of individuals who have been looking over uh, to your career over there in Indonesia with a close eye. And obviously, there was a huge, huge um, reverberation after you had gotten so much success with Bayankara. Um, Not easy to get a a trophy over there in Indonesia. You were able to win it all. What was that like?
2: Uh, Unexpected. It really was. You know, right up until a couple of, probably about a month before the end of the season we still didn't think we're going to push it over the line because as you've kind of alluded to in what you've just said there's a lot that goes on off the pitch in this part of the world especially in this country that if you're not part of it then it can work against you and if you're one of the smaller teams not involved in that that upper level that elite then um sometimes that can really drag you down so no matter how the results are coming in all of a sudden you find yourself not winning games and not not getting the decisions and uh and the bigger teams with the more supporters tend to get them. So without getting myself in too much trouble, the fact that we were able to see it through till the end was really quite surprising uh, to, I think, everybody. I think it helped that the bigger teams weren't competing. At the end of the day, we were against one, of, one or two of the other smaller teams, not so much the, the massively supported teams. And I think that helped us. But, um, yeah, it was, was a surprise. And, and still to this day, um, you know, I look back at it and, and very, very proud of that achievement
0: with a success with Bayankaya that kind of paved the way for you moving on into the Indonesian national team, which was kind of a strange sensation. I'm sure for a lot of us football fans here in the Philippines to see you um, on the sidelines for Indonesia, being as that was the team that we played in the semifinals of the first ever Suzuki cup that we made the semis. Um, What was that like for you? You know, um, being a part of that team all of a sudden.
2: Um, Well, listen, when you're the head coach of a national team, it's, it's, A tremendous honour and a a tremendous privilege. And you really, well, I really feel it, whether it's with the Philippines and 500 people in the stadium or with the Indonesian national team and there's 85,000 people in the stadium. It's an incredible privilege to have a a country stand behind you. And Indonesia being a football country, first and foremost, a football country, you know, all of a sudden you get given the national team job and and, um, you go from being... Oh, aren't you that one of those guys that you're one of the coaches in the league to being, Oh, you're Simon and the head coach of the national team. And it goes, you go from being noticed by drivers and security guards to being then noticed by everybody. And that's a real something you kind of have to get your head around. I didn't have that with the Azcals as much, you know, my time with the Azcals finished and then that's when the fame bit kicked in. So, uh, to do that here has been kind of strange to get my head around a little bit, um, but it's, it, again, a very proud moment, disappointed how it ended, disappointed we, we didn't get to see the plan through. Um, it started off very well, but uh, I think forces conspired against it a little bit and, and ultimately didn't really get any luck at all in the last kind of four or five months. And that, that made it really difficult.
0: Yeah, spells in the, in the national team, particularly in Indonesia, seemingly uh, a real volatile Environment um, over there. Um, we got an opportunity quite recently in the AFC Cup to be there. Unfortunately, there wasn't much of a crowd, um, but it would have been nice to actually see you. That was your first commentary gig, uh, apparently, as well. <laughs> so, you're, so you're moving on into other parts of, of, of the football career as well. How, how did that pan out for you?
2: Uh, that was great fun. You know, and it, it was, I've been on at Fox Sports for ages because I remember sitting there and listening to some of the guys going on about. You know how Serres line up and how Kaya... and they don 't know the story they don 't know what Kaya have to deal with they don 't know the players that come into they 're putting lineups on the board and, and it 's literally just throwing darts at the wall they 've got no idea about the actual inner workings of these two teams so i 've been on at them for a while that listen, you know I, to, forget about massive payments. Just let me come in and put some detail with respect to. Both Indonesia and Philippines. To, let's get this information right. So finally, they took me up on it, and it was it was a real pleasure to go in and work on the the Kaya PSM game. Two teams that I know yeah. very very well. Um, and strangely enough, they you guys flew here to Jakarta to play the game, and I flew to Singapore to commentate on it. So <laughs> yeah, I wasn't I wasn't even in the country. <laughs>
0: We must have had a great perspective on it knowing you've got so much experience not only you know obviously you've got the national teams of both countries you've also been involved in the league of both countries Loyola Morocco Sparks uh, back in the heyday there was a lot of great battles with Chris I'm sure you guys will have a lot of memories about those
2: yeah we had a few we had a few most mostly good natured one or two bad natured but uh, yeah
0: <laughs> we had a, we had our
2: battles we had our battles. it's the thing about Philippine football as opposed to Indonesian football is that because it's such a small environment, it's very, very easy for things to get personal very quickly. The sense of professionalism really is only understood by a, a, a smaller percentage. Whereas Indonesia, you know, they go and play and then it's finished. The game's finished and then they're laughing and joking. And it frustrates me a little bit they're so blase about going to work, playing a game and coming home again. I think in the Philippines... It, it took on a little bit more because it was, because it came from like an, a, an amateur semi-pro background and was built into this thing that it, it does get quite personal. It, it, we, we do know the stories behind everything. You are, it, it was quite difficult at times. And, and, and I used, to, I'll be honest, I used to hate the, the Moralco-Kaya games. I used to hate them because my players would do crazy things. And in the end, I ended up doing silly things. But that, mm. that's what that environment does to you because you know each other so well. And it just... Yeah, professor the, the the personal feeling, I hate it when personal feeling gets in the way of a professional performance. It's one of the things I say to players all the time is is don't let this get personal. Let's just
1: go play the game and do what we can. I think it's quite interesting you say that. Sort of um I remember you um there was an article that was or an interview that you conducted. I think it was uh, Indonesia against, I want to get this country right. Was it Thailand where it, it, it was it threatened to boil over? Uh, Malaysia. Uh, Malaysia, sorry, sorry Malaysia. Yeah. Sorry, of course, yeah, Malaysia. Yeah. And you were saying that it, for whatever reason in this game in particular, um, you know, a, a lot of the emotions just get the better yeah. of the players on the pitch and then invariably it ends up being, you know, a game where, you know, Players, are put, teams are playing under man. Players get sent off, or you know, reckless challenges and, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, you know, one of the things on the jings covered quite a lot about being in Indonesia, but that was is is that something that was a marked difference between your experience that you had here versus there, or or do you think it was just magnified because of the fact that you know you had eighty five thousand people in the stadium and you know probably a lot more media coverage, etc. It's
2: it's interesting because within the two countries, I've had two opposite ends of the scale experiences in, in both national team and club team. You know, over there, club games are played in front of, if you're lucky, five, 600 people, sometimes live on TV, sometimes not. Here, if you play Percival Procedure in the afternoon on a Wednesday, you'll be playing in front of 45, 50,000 mm. people. So it's two ends club-wise. The national team was the same. You know, back, my only experiences with the Azcars were when not many people were, in fact, I never played a home game. That was one of my regrets. I never, had, I never got a home game with the national team. So we didn't really ever have that many fans supporting us. Whereas mm. the opposite end of the scale with Indonesia, they just kick off. I mean, they just properly... They were, they, the first game against Malaysia, we were coming back from a ban from international football. It was our first time back in the World Cup. And as we come out for the warm-up, the players walk out on the pitch alongside the Malaysian players. We look across to, to one of the far stands... And this whole stand has got a sign up where they all hold up a piece of paper. And when, it all, when you read it all together, it says, "FU losers. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. And that's before a ball's been kicked. That's, we're not even back into a World Cup qualifier. They've already got us a fine without even kicking a ball. All the way through the game, they're trying to get at the probably three or 400 Malaysian fans. They're, trying to get, they're, throwing, they're, they're ripping their own seats off and throwing their own seats at the Malaysian fans of a stadium that is theirs. It just, it, it, the, the passion spills over on so many fronts in football in this country, and not just national team, in, in club team, um, in local derbies. And going back to Chris's point, you know, because of that passion, because of that the way they put themselves into football in this country is very, very difficult to control those feelings as a head coach where you have to get a result out of this game and you're trying to calm your players down when they're bouncing off the walls and, and ready to go and rip the other team to shreds because of personal feeling. Derbies for a head coach, I, I, I really don't enjoy them, either in the Philippines or in this country.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, as a player, now that now st- I stepped into the, the coaching breach now, like it's probably the thing that I miss the most like uh, the tension and stuff building into Derby Day or getting you know, a game when there was a heated rivalry is like yeah, I mean even as a coach I really enjoyed it like I, I, I enjoyed the anticipation of it I enjoyed the sort of the needle um, the nervousness am I going to play am I not going to play from, you know players under your you know in, in, under your charge Then as a player like I, I just you know I remember just just <laughs> just being super amped up like I mean, like, it's. it's, I think maybe you're right to a certain extent in terms of um, because it was a much smaller community. I mean, we only had probably at the time eight teams, maybe I would say. Yeah. When you were when you were here, I don't know, maybe eight club teams, so maybe it was magnified because of those eight teams. Let's say probably four of them were particularly strong. So whenever those games came around, they were always sort of the, the the electric charge on that on those games was 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 amped up to a, you know, to yeah. a completely cont- different level. Um, and then, then you'll probably invariably, you'll go back to your, to where you live and you'll live within, you know, one or two square mile radius of each other. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. you're going to bump into people the next day and, uh, you know, your wife's going to bump into each other on the street or whatever. So it, it's, I think here it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult to kind of get away from it on a, on a more personal level. Obviously, if you're in somewhere like Indonesia, it's different. You can't get away from it because the fans are going to be on at you. Social media is Know, just notor- notoriously bad in, uh, in Indonesia as, as, as you've experienced so um, yeah it's quite interesting you hear it say that you didn't, I, I loved it I loved it and, and no, I, it's I, the know, I probably I, I probably missed I probably missed the most actually um, now, now that I'm on this side of the fence
2: I think I'd have enjoyed it as a player you know if I was ever to listen it's your show but uh, if, I was yeah, ever, yeah, yeah. if I was ever at your level to be able to play I was, I was never at that level as a player but if I had I would have enjoyed, you know, coming out because I think players just go out for the 90 minutes. They don't necessarily take in the whole concept of what that game means. And especially in Indo, you know, you you lose against your your arch rival. The expectation is amplified endlessly. So to, to that puts your line on the job. You're now on on, you know, thinking about it from a coaching perspective, you're now on rocky ground. Your next game is now massively important because you've just lost a big one where, bosses were expecting you to win. And that, that's mm. the, the, the life of a professional coach, unfortunately. I mean, you didn't, I don't think in the Philippines, you really got that underlying pressure of having to get results. Whereas mm. here, you know, in, in, when I first arrived in 2012, actually written in my contract was that if I ever got to three home losses, then that was grounds for sacking. It was actually written in my contract. So I couldn't get it out of the contract. I, I wow. negotiated as hard as I could. I couldn't get it out. If I lost three home games, they had the right to sack me with no compensation. So this is what you have to live with. You know, you're walking along that razor's edge. And against when it's local derbies, when you know that the expectation is amped for these games. You know, there's some games you go into that the bosses are fairly sensible. Well, this is a tough game. You might not get three points here. And, and But when you're against local derbies, especially at home, you're expected to win all your home games. No excuses, no matter who you play. So there's that underlying, especially here, there's that underlying pressure that, listen... We've got to get things right today. And when people start doing crazy things because of the spur of the moment, you know, it throws your game plan out all over the place and you, you just have to ride it out and see what happens.
0: Hmm.
1: I think how that's that something into...
0: that...
1: Go, 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 go. Go, go. So, go, so, ahead. go ahead,
0: Jim. How does that play into your your approach to the games when you know that there's so much riding on it, so much on the line? It's a derby game. You've got, you know, your career on the line as well. Does that, does that force you to play more conservatively? Does, how does that play into your approach going into those kinds of games?
2: I don't think that you're necessarily considering your career in build-up to a game. It's, it's a consideration after the result. And really, you have to be able to put that in a box and lock it away. You can't, you can't carry that around with you because that will, like you're saying, that will start to influence you a little bit. You'll start to... to, to be scared a little bit. You probably won't want your players to press as high. You'll want to play more defensively. Even at home, you'll want to play more defensively. You've got to be able to lock that way to an extent and stick to the principles that you've got in the players. And, and that's why, for my part anyway, a, a good pre and a clear game plan, a clear way of playing, and maybe a plan A, plan B, plan C, that the players understand. Um, I think if you start adjusting based on how you're feeling, I think that's a very dangerous thing. You, you might end up losing a game based on something that you know you got, and, and you end up getting sacked for it. And you you were saying to yourself, do you know what? If we'd have gone a bit higher up the pitch, if I'd played another striker, if we'd have done what we normally do, we'd have been all right. You can't let that creep in. I think confidence as a head coach um, is is crucial to back up that credibility factor. Credibility is everything, and if you're not confident going into a room, um, you're already you're already psychologically affecting the
0: players mm. I cut you off earlier Chris
1: no I mean just already going, following on from that question um, I'm quite intrigued to see you know how how that sort of affects you in terms of like decisions that you're going to be making moving forward um, and, and and also how, how does that sort of affect your family like I'm always quite interested in um, you know when, when I see people at the the razor's edge as as you described of coaching um when you know that it's you're in that sort of volatile environment how that sort of affects um you know your your loved ones your wife your kids like is it something you're able to to, like is it compartmentalize or do do you bring it home and then on the and then the sort of the second follow-up question on, on top of that is you know, does that affect like what what you're going to be thinking about next? You know, like I I've, I think about this a lot. Having I've done so many different roles now, which I've quite enjoyed. Uh, you know, going from head coach to assistant coach with national teams, um, doing academy stuff, and I, t- uh, I think I said so when Jing and I were discussing when I had a, an interview with him. I don't really know how I, I, I want to sort of progress with this because there's certain elements to all these different jobs that I really enjoy. Like I like working as an assistant because I feel like you're just more kind of on the grass. And then the other stuff is handled by a head coach, which I really enjoyed. I, I enjoyed working in the academy because it's, it's the different components to the job. So the days are very different, which I, which I enjoy. Uh, I enjoy being a head coach because you want to have that responsibility. But then yeah. tempered with that is, is you, there, there is a lot of responsibility and it falls, falls solely on your shoulders. So sort of, to bring it back to my original question, yeah, I, I, I just want to know how that sort of affects you both in terms of your home life. And then, sort of in decisions that you're going to be making moving forward for, for your own personal career
2: uh, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's incredibly hard, and it, it it's taken a lot of um, I don't want to say soul searching because that sounds just a little bit up in the air, but but certainly a lot of contemplation, a little sit, a lot of sitting down and talking with with the wife and saying, "Listen, when I come home." When I close that front door, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want any sort of discussion about how the game went. I don't mind. You know, if we win, it's a little bit easier for you to come <laughs> over and, you know, put your arm around me, give me a kiss and say, well done, darling. And then, you know, we sit down and watch a film. But this has to be my sanctuary. This has to help when I come home from a game because you've got that much pressure and that much noise and that much influence from all angles, the fans, the, the manager standing behind you. He sits next to you on the bench during games, you know, and you can feel him looking into the side of your head as as things are not going well. There's there's so many different things that you have to deal with that you need to be able to go to a place where you can just lock the door, shut it off, go for a swim with a little man or, or, or play a game, sit and watch a film with the wife. That that's the biggest medicine. I think there possibly is. And if you don't have that and you allow football in my own experience, I can't speak for other people, but in my own experience, if it starts to creep into your home life, there's no escape. And when things do go bad, everything goes bad. Mm. There's, there's no hiding from it, you know? I think what, what works for me, strangely, and as tough as it was, is that I've been sacked a number of times already. So I go into these games now, you know, if I pick up another team, I'm not necessarily afraid of being sacked. Whereas before, it never happened to me. And I'm like, Jesus, I've just lost a job. What am I going to do? Um, I've got to yeah. remove everything, you know? Once it's happened to you, once it's happened to you a few times you don't you're not as as worried about it you're not as scared about it um you're not as as you don't think about it as much it's just part of the game it's like losing a game you lose a job all right fair enough we move on with a bit of luck my cv is strong enough now that i'll get another job and i've always fortunately enough been able to find another job Mm. so that that confidence of 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 all right what's the worst that can happen i lose the job that starts to kind of just pale off in the distance a little bit. I mean, losing the national team job was a kick. I mean, it was a real blow because it was the, the to be head coach of Indonesia was amazing and the pressure that comes with that. But it's not the worst thing in the world that could happen to me. And I still got a little man at home I can come and play with and I can still sit on the sofa with the wife and, and watch a film. You know, it's that's so crucial to me. So, so mm-hmm. crucial. And, and I can't play down uh, the importance of having that to anyone uh, who's working in an environment like this
1: yeah and, and then how does that sort of affect your, your decision making sort of moving forward because I'm, I'm sure like you said your CV's strong you've got good experience you've you, you won titles to, uh, like, like getting another opportunity I don't think it's going to be too much of an issue for you but what what sort of things are you looking for perhaps in your, in your, in your next role? Like there's certain things that you think, okay, right well, now I've experienced this with an Indonesian national team. I, I need to steer clear of this, you know, or, or are you, are you looking at it from, uh, you know, I don't want to be a head coach. I'd, I'd love to be a director <laughs> of football. Like I'd love to be a, you know, I'd like to get into coach education. I don't know. Like what, what's, what's your sort of viewpoint now having, having gone through that cycle now, uh, club well, coach, national team coach again, what's,
2: it, we've, yeah. we've we've had a few messages back and forth after games when you were, you know, when you were coaching at Kaya and and you know, I'd throw a couple of messages across you. And I, I find that now little man is in the world, and there's more responsibility on my shoulders at home in my sanctuary. There's now more responsibility on my shoulders to provide mm. that there is more pressure on me than to go to work. And I, I've said a few times that now he's around, I find losing much much harder to deal with. I've never never been a particularly good loser, but you know, I it's part and parcel of the job. You're not going to win all your games. So having to deal with losing is as important as having to deal with winning. It, it, it's just part of the, the whole plan. So I will always find losing difficult, but I think the the harder you work, especially when you're under pressure and you, you tend to work that bit harder, you, you know, you're, you're pulling out all the stops to try and get that three points and it still doesn't work out. That hits you a bit harder. And knocks you right back, and then you have to try and pick yourself up on a Monday to think, right, okay, that didn't work. What am I going to do this week? That's maybe slightly different. How can I adapt things a bit more? So I think that the decision-making process in terms of my next job, um, I think, to be honest, I've, I've, you know, Indonesia, I've completed it, mate. It's done. Yeah, I've pretty much ticked the boxes. You know, I've, I've. The only thing I've not done here has been relegated and i don't really want to hang about so yeah Yeah. to to be able to move on to a more established league would be probably a goal of mine right now yeah to to have a little bit more to have more of the tools to do the job instead of having to make do with what i've got or or bodge a a, an ice bath from a wheelie bin or you know just to have the tools to actually do the job um but to be able to move on into a more professional environment where there aren't so many outside factors that affect performance that, that that's something I'd probably look for now is, is yeah, how, okay. after being in Indonesia, how uh, fans interact and, and what the pressure is on coaches.
1: Definitely. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's quite interesting. Like I'm sure in many respects, that's probably been the, the making of you as well. So you can't sort of knock those experiences mm. because it, because my, my, my experience, you know, I, I quite I quite enjoy that. I quite enjoy like, oh, how am I going to play this game? And then you, you, you sort of manufacture a training session based on the, in, the instruments that you've got in front of you. You know what I mean? You, you do yeah. find yourself being quite resourceful. And I think I, I sometimes, I don't pity coaches when they go straight in uh, at, at a, you know, really good level because, you know, it, it, someone like a Frank Lampard, for example. Yeah, you know, yeah. He's gone in and, and he's training yeah. and he's done an amazing job, and that's fine, that's great. But I sometimes think for a lot of coaches, who, who are, he's he's definitely the exception and not the rule. Or I think there's a lot of coaches who could probably benefit from going in and yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, you know, like for me, it was going in America, and I would I would coach kinder soccer, you know, two and three year olds, and then have to do like a really elite level girls team within an hour of each other. And you're like, well, okay. Like you have to wear all these different hats and yeah. conduct yourself in a different way that it just adds to your toolbox as a coach. You know, I agree hundred percent, mate, hundred percent. I think that the fact that
2: you've come from, uh, you know, coaching kids, even, even under, under five coaching is the hardest coaching you will ever. Do. Yeah. I, I don't care what anybody says. And I, and I've fortunately, I've been a head coach for two national teams and coaching under fives is easily the hardest coaching you'll ever do no matter who you work for, wherever you work, if you can get your head around that and put some sort of session where they come out a bit positive with some having some football fun at the very least, that prepares you so well for dealing with some of the, the obstacles that are thrown with you at this level. Other coaches come out here and they've only worked at a certain level. Mm. They come out here, they have expectations. Those expectations aren't met and they're sacked two weeks later because they kick off at the wrong people. Or yeah. they, upset, they upset the boss and the boss goes, right, it enough. You know, they, they don't, they, they can't roll with the punches. And I think that background of working with kids in, in all sorts of different environments where you bring a bag of balls and you have forgot the pump and you've only got one ball that's pumped up or you know, a dog steals four of your cones in the middle of a session and now you haven't come up with something different and you're always trying to be creative and proactive and, and not let too many of things affect your session, just, just have fun with the kids. I think that yeah. gives you such a background to build on to, once you get up to the higher levels.
1: Yeah, no, I agree, mate. I agree. It's um, it's yeah, it's quite interesting that you said that on a more even at a professional level because there's obviously an assumption that you know obviously when you when you're coaching a national team or you're coaching at the professional level that all of these things are going to be, you know, you're going to be catered for, you'll be looked after, and there's pretty, there's certain elements of that which which yeah yeah you are. You know, I I remember talking to players who I who played with who were. Uh, professional clubs in UK and they're like well I've played in front of 90,000 people before quarter of a billion people watching on TV you've never done that and you've played your whole life you know what I mean by the same token by the same token like you said they've They've never had to, you know, scoop catch it off the, <laughs> you know, off the training pitch, you know. So, you know, it, it's 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 all these different things that you have to sort of weigh up. And no, it's it's interesting that you're looking to try and find something more established because, like you said, you've probably paid your dues now and you've you've, you've done, you know, at, at this level, you've done what you've needed to do. And yeah, I, I'd like to see you have a crack at something, uh, like you said, in the more established league and and, and see, where that, see where that takes you. I, Do you know what, though, mate? In, in, all honesty,
2: in all honesty, I've, I would actually like the opportunity to be an assistant for a while. Something you yeah? mentioned earlier, I've never been an assistant. And, and I don't, mm. that, that's not an ego thing. That's just simply that I got offered the Philippines job way back, arguably experience-wise when I wasn't really ready for it, but took it and mm. did okay. And then moved on and moved on and moved on and moved on. And moved on. never really... Um, I was never really a number two I was never really underneath someone where I got a chance to kind of learn from and learn from their mistakes and then was kind of pushed forward and took over the number one spot that that never really happened to me I went from here to boom straight in I mean I was assistant <laughs> assistant assistant manager at Worthing which was you know below Lewis that's a couple of leagues below Lewis at the time yeah, that, that yeah. not a particularly high standard of football when I was the assistant I wasn't even the number one yeah and then to go straight into to being head coach for a national team was a was a massive step and a huge learning curve and there was mistakes you know in the early days in the i say early days i was only eight months but in the early months there was mistakes all over the place when i look back at it how i dealt with certain things things that i know that i shouldn't have done now that i had no idea what i was doing at the time but you know you mentioned it i think that that perfect storm of whatever happened happened and and here we are we're we're 10 years down the road in very different Mm. circumstances but Back then, there was so much I didn't get, so much I didn't understand. I was just kind of making
1: decisions ad hoc as we go. Yeah. I, I, I want to come back onto the um, the number two thing later on. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll hopefully. sort of come back to that, revisit that, because I think that's quite, you've segued quite nicely into the the main part of the interview, which I'm sure three or four people have tuned in to, to listen to you uh, <laughs> talk about. Um, but, no, I mean, just for, for those of you who don't really know the story, like, Do you want to go through, because you sort of said, even just you uttering the words there, you were only in in the job for eight months, which sounds ridiculous when you actually think about it. Um, But obviously there was a bit of groundwork that went into it before that. And I'm not sure if everyone knows the the full story. I mean, it's it's been written about in a couple of uh, UK publications. But um, yeah, do you want to just go through how you initially got, because I think that's quite an interesting story in itself. So
2: 2000, I started in 2008. Um, it was Christmas time, 2008, and I was uh, player manager of Haywards Heath Town at the time. And um, I broke my leg in a tackle. And the whole of 2009, I was laid off work. I lost my job. I was working with Nike at the time. I was in a cast. January, I lost my job with Nike. Then uh, three months, uh, two weeks later, Sarah lost her job as well. So both of us are out of work. So 2009 was probably one of the hardest years of my life, just trying to make ends meet. I, was, I couldn't get another job because all my CV was football. It was all kind of youth coaching and development work and stuff like that. I was in a cast up to my hip with a broken leg. Sarah, luckily, was a, was a PA, so she was quite adaptable to different things, so she picked up a job quite quickly. But I was out of work for nine months of that year and, and sat on a bed for, for three of them. Um, finally, when I did get back to work, an insurance company offered me a job as some sort of <laughs> man, a business development manager I'm not even <laughs> sure what I did there to be fair I sat I sat in a chair and drank coffee most of the day um but I spent the whole day just staring out the window thinking about football and uh uh mid 2009 your brother was chatting to me on Facebook Simon I was chatting away to Simon on Facebook and we were talking about good old days at Burgess Hill under 18s where I used to work with him and um he said, Have you heard about the Philippines? No, not really. He said, um, we've just lost our, our British head coach and they're looking for someone. What, where are you working right now? And at the time I was, you know, I was assistant with Worthing. I'd, I'd left Hayworth Heath and gone there to help uh, Simon Colbran there. And he said, you should, you should send your CV in. I my CV, it's for a national team job. "Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll talk to some of the boys and we'll talk you up. <laughs> you know I mean, like there's a scam going on and we'll get you in. But... So it's never going to happen. He's like, no, no, just send me your CV. So oh, I sent my CV across and, and sent it in and then just forgot about it. And I went home that night to Sarah. I said, I'll just apply for the Philippines national team job. She just laughed at me and went on to finish cooking my dinner. And then I'm back to work staring out the window of coffee in my hand and, and the phone goes and it's um, Ace Bright from the Philippines national team. And he said, um, Mr. we would like to have a chat with you. You've got your CV. Okay, fair enough. I um, had a chat with him and we had a quick chat about kind of philosophy and, and what my thoughts were in football and, and what, what, I was, what I saw was important and what I didn't and, and just really a real basic kind of hello introduction into to what I thought about football. And he said, okay, we'll call you back in a day or two. Okay. Didn't really think too much of it. I thought it was just kind of a screening stage. You know, I'd sent my CV and they were nice enough to give me a call back. And then two days later, he called me back. He said, okay, we'd like to offer you the job. Um, would you be interested in being the head coach of the Philippines? And I was, well, yeah, of course I would. I'd run to the airport now if you asked me. <laughs> I was all over it, dying to get back into football. I just didn't think it would be this. I thought it would be kind of a, you know, under nines coaching somewhere. <laughs> um, and he offered me the job. And I, I remember putting the phone down and, and I had to, he said, right, you've got 10 days to get to Manila. And this is from nothing. This is from just, you know, can you accept it? Yes. Right. Can you move to Manila in 10 days time? Mm -hmm. Having never been to the Philippines before. So I got up from my desk, walked into the the managing director's office and I said, "Um, Ken, I'm going to have to step down. He said, oh, what's that for? And I told him I've just been offered a dream job that I just can't say no to. He said, oh, that's great. How much are you getting paid for it? Uh, I actually forgot to even ask the question. I, I, I had no idea what my salary was. <laughs> I didn't even ask the question because he's offered me a national team job. Do you know what I mean? He'd give me a packet of crisps and a pat on the back and I'll do the job. But I didn't even ask what the salary was. It was only at that point did I think, ah, oh, should have asked that. Um, but anyway, he was he was great. He, he got up and he, he said, just stay here. And he went to the fridge and he brought back a bottle of champagne and put two glasses on and invited other people in. We all sat around and had a drink. I don't really like champagne, but the fact that he did that and, and said, "Let me know what you need. We'll make everything happen. We'll get you out of here, and we, we'll make everything uh, smooth so that you can go and follow the job." Went home that night and I said, to "Sarah, um, you remember I put my CV in for that Philippines job?" She went, "Yeah." I said, "Well, I've just been offered it. I've just accepted it. They want me to go to Manila in ten days, and I swear to God." she stood there and burst into tears and cried her eyes out for a good 15 minutes and then we kind of sat down and worked it out and and the tickets came through the next day and then 10 days later i arrived in manila and it kind of was just a whirlwind from then on i mean that that's the full god honest story of how it all happened. it was over facebook thanks to your little brother
1: yeah
0: that's incredible
2: I know it's crazy crazy. it shouldn't happen it really (laughs) shouldn't happen but it did Um, and here we are
0: when you arrived what was it like I mean you arrive in Manila um, how soon after was there uh, your first training session Uh, well so
2: I arrived into one of the older terminals and you come through and there was no one there to meet me so I've got off the plane Walked through with with huge big suitcases and walked out and got to the outside. I'm standing there knowing that, you know, you have to go across a couple of bits for someone to pick you up. There's the Mm. bus and the taxis and all, and it's just chaos. And I'm standing there and I've just realized to myself, I don't even have anyone's phone number. I don't even know a name of someone who is supposed to pick me up or get in contact with. I've just said yes and got on the plane. So if no one picks me up, what the hell am I going to do? I've got no money. My cards don't work here. My phone doesn't. I can't phone anyone. And I'm just standing there with my cases. And it all just dawns on me, Jesus, what am I doing? (laughs) And then at the corner of my eye, little ace walks up to me, oh, hello coach. Oh, hello mate. And and, um, we loaded all the stuff up into the car. And he said, training's happening now. We're gonna take you straight to training. Well, I'm going to training right now. But like now we're gonna, okay. So straight to, uh, I think the American school in Manila. Uh, we were training on the plastic at the time, and uh, yeah, I, I pitched up at training and sat, and, and I said to them, "Listen, I'm not doing anything with the players today. I don't, I don't really, I don't want to. Let me just sit and watch and just take it in before I, because again, I, I'm not, I've not done this before. I'm not, I'm not sure how to approach this. I need to give this a bit of thought about how I speak to the players. So I watched training." went back to the hotel, staying in that hotel was terrible. They moved me into two different hotels. Yeah, sure. uh, that was just uh, the start of things to come, I think, but I uh, started off in a really bad hotel. and then went back to training the next day, and that was the first day I took my session. and all night I was not sleeping. I was uh, I think mean, it was a bad hotel, and there was a, uh, I remember clearly lying in bed jet lags as you like staring at the fire alarm with this little green light just going dink 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 all the way all night long and i'm lying there thinking what the hell am i going to do what am i doing i genuinely was just all over the place and then we got to training got speaking to the players started the session and as soon as the session started it's almost like i just relaxed it was almost just like oh okay this is football Uh, i know a little bit about football i can put a session on so that was when i kind of just and a lot of the worries and the tensions just kind of went away a little bit. And we got into the session and it was all fun and games. And um, yeah, and, it, and then it just kicked on from there, really.
1: Who was there? Who was, who was in the, the players group? Because obviously a lot of the foreign guys wouldn't, wouldn't have been in uh, that group.
2: Do you remember uh,
1: much of who was there?
2: Yeah, a lot of the local guys, um, a lot of the military guys, obviously, Chiefy, Chiefy and the two main characters were Chiefy and Ali. Yeah. Ali Ali was kind of the, the Western based Filipinos or the, the, the Western educated Filipinos. Yeah. He was he was those guys. And then Chief he was all the locals. Um and you still had Henaire and and, and <laughs> so many of these old boys. Um Bads was there and yeah. Izzo was there. I kept getting told Izzo was gonna play and he was cause he was class and um Bads was a good player, a little bit more a bit a little bit slower, a little bit older. Um, Phil and James turned up a little bit after that I got to meet them and it was quite nice yeah. because obviously they, they were a little bit more English and was able to speak to them a bit more and, and in a language I understood but yeah it was, it was there was a lot of guys there who didn't really figure too much further on down the road just uh, the yeah. local local training squad if you like for the national team
0: when, when did you arrive and how soon after was the Suzuki Cup So I think I had about
2: three weeks to prepare for the Long Ten Cup, which you mentioned with with Rob in the last episode. Mm. Um, And we flew to Kaohsiung in Taiwan and played in the stadium there. Um, Incredible stadium. And the first game was against Hong Kong, and we lost 3-2. And the story about that game, my first game as a national team head coach after three weeks preparation with a new squad and the games were live on TV. It was a long term cup, So they were all kind of local televised and it was absolutely throwing it down for hour, for the hour before the game. And we got to the game and it was just ridiculous. You know, even, even Sunday league games in the UK would have been called off. It was, it was underwater by this much and it was just stupid. It wasn't football. Um, but they kicked off anyway because it was live on TV and five minutes into the game. You know, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting on the bench thinking to myself, this is my first national team game. This is just a joke. I mean, this, is, this isn't even football. What am I going to do here? Do I stand up? Do I speak to? I, I'm, I still don't know these things. Do I. Anyway, I went and stood on the sideline, got soaking wet, stood out in the rain with the players, and, and spent the next 10 minutes just berating the referee and that this is ridiculous and someone's going to get hurt. And the, the linesman keeps coming past me and going back and coming. And every time he goes past I'm like, this is stupid. What's going on? What's going on? This is stupid. <laughs> So eventually they called the referee over and then the Hong Kong coach came out as well with an umbrella and kind of stood next to me and I said, listen, this is ridiculous. What, what are we doing here? Someone's really going to get hurt. This isn't football. Um, and eventually they postponed the game until the next day. So my very first game as a national team head coach, I berated the referee to the point where he cancelled the game and put it on the next day. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we played the game the next day and lost 3-2. Um, but that was a good that was a good experience. The, the whole long ten cup was that went on for what two weeks. Then we went back. We had I think we had another two weeks, three weeks back in Manila, and then we went to uh, we ended up in Thailand. And I think you mentioned it again in the last episode. We played a Thai league team, second division league team, and got spanked beyond all sights. Um, and then the next time we went to. Was uh, Lau for the for the qualifiers?
1: Yeah. So what what happened there? Cause I, I I didn't go. I didn't play in that game. So first of all, like what are you thinking at the point where you get absolutely annihilated? Was it nine nine nil nine one or whatever? Are you yeah. thinking? Yeah. I mean, like, what what was it like? Was it a case of you, you just had shocking players? Was it just a team that was just much better than you on the day? And then did it have a knock on effect? Sort of going into into the into the camp in Laos like did you think oh my gosh like, we're never going to qualify here
2: um i kept getting told that we've got lots of players going to join you know there's there's some this players going to join don't worry don't worry we'll just <laughs> we'll just get through these games um yeah you know we'll get through these preparation games the whole emphasis being on the word preparation that isn't really preparation because there's a whole new squad coming in but um I'm just, I was just literally trying to get my head around it all. Just trying to, yeah. think, right, okay, well, which one of these, who are, some of these players must be half decent. They, we can't be bringing in a whole new 11. So some of these must figure, which ones are going to figure. And it was really trying to work out you know, who you could put a, an, a, a, a tick next to and who you put a cross next to. And that's that pretty much it. It wasn't really about the result or any,
1: yeah.
2: any real formation because I knew that new players were coming in. So it was more just trying to work out what all these players were about and, and how they would play against half decent opposition. Um, Phil played that day I think James played that day that was pretty much it it was all local guys um,
1: yeah.
2: up until that point um, but I did a lot of research on on what Des Bulpin, the coach before me was trying to do in training sessions and um, I watched a lot of videos of, of previous games and and what I didn't want to come in and just try and change too much because so much work had already been put in by Des and I, I didn't have enough time to kind of you know what I mean reinvent the wheel so I wanted to kind of take on a little bit from what he'd done and maybe just tweak it a little bit. So I watched a lot of videos and he tried to do a lot of press and he tried to get guys higher up the pitch and try and put a bit of pressure on defences. And, um, you yeah, know, we went into that that tournament in Laos with really quite low expectation, uh, even from bosses. And, and now I've experienced what real expectation is. I know that was very low expectation. There wasn't a lot of people going, oh, you can, you can do this. You can, you can get... It was just, you know, we lost your coach quite recently. We've got you in. Let's just, let's just give it a good go and see what happens. There wasn't really anyone talking about doing anything as such. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was more just trying to find a, a, a tactic, a, a way of playing that, that I think suited the ability and the level of players that we had. That was more what, what I was quite keen to find at the time.
1: What can you remember from the uh, from that competition? Because you said the expectations were low, but there was a lot riding on it. There was a lot riding on that. Um, This is this is probably quite uh, uh, a novel idea to a lot of the sort of newer Philippine fans that we actually used to have to qualify for the the Suzuki Cup. Yeah, you know, it's it's now it's like oh yeah, we should make be making the finals, but at this time we would have to go through the qualifying phase, and they were quite precarious because you know you lose one game and, and you're almost out the running yeah um, you know looking at the teams you had obviously Laos uh, and Cambodia were probably really the teams you, that you would have expected to have qualified and then maybe you guys pushing those two maybe for, for one, of, one of those two spots um, can you remember the sequence of games going yeah through I, I, those, to be honest those qualifiers?
2: Mate, I remember pretty much everything um, yeah. in terms of how it, how it affected me. I mean, the ins and outs of each game, who passed to who, um, I'll leave you to do that because I know you've got that kind of memory. But it, I remember a lot of... The first game was against Timor-Leste um, and we beat them um,
1: 5-0.
2: Something
1: like that, yeah. Ian scored like four goals, right? Ian Araneta
2: <laughs> got a hat-trick, yeah. And we played... Yeah. We tried to press. We, we went really high up the pitch. Because we thought, okay, these aren't the better teams. They're not that much better than us. So let's try and make them play out. And hopefully they'll give us the ball nearer their penalty area and we can score quicker. So mm. that was the whole process of, of pressing these guys and going after Timor-Leste. Um, and we, we played quite well in that game. And what was, what was good is that you know, it wasn't Phil that was scoring all the goals. It was actually Ian. So that gave mm. me a little bit of confidence. Okay, we might have a goal or two about us if we can get mm. guys in a good position. But it was still a little bit more finding out about who can do what. I mean, luckily we had Neil at that point, which is a massive advantage Mm. um, to have someone of that ability and goal compared to, with respect, you know, uh, Laos goalkeeper Cambodia and Timor-Leste's at the time. Um, Mm. So to have someone like that coming from a good level to be your rear guard and, and knowing that, okay, well, he's got that under control. I don't need to focus on that. And you had someone like Rob who I'd already worked with through the long 10, and, and I knew that he's, he knew what he was talking about. So I gave him fewer instructions and really concentrated on those that needed that bit more. So mm. I knew that I had Neil. I knew that I had Rob control and defense. Then I, I had time to work on everybody else. I had Phil working with, with Ian up top, just giving him little hints and tips and trying to get him playing together. So um, uh, one of the main things I did was try and almost install responsibility into each you know, a midfield line, defence line and attack line so that, so that one person was coordinating and I could just coordinate them to pass on. Because obviously, some of them didn't speak English either. So uh, yeah. that was a bit of an issue. But the game against Timor-Leste, I think, was a big confidence boost. That, that helped us quite a lot. Um, it settled nerves a little bit. And then we went into the game against Lao, And that was, I think that was a draw. Um, and then we went into the, the Cambodia game, and you mentioned it against uh in, in the last episode, you know, that underrated goal from Jimmy. And that's probably one of the most important goals that the Azcals have ever scored because there was yeah. no Azcals before that, and that, that really put us on the path for, for Suzuki finals 2010. But yeah, yeah, it, incredibly precarious, but um just at the time was an incredible experience. I didn't have anything to relate it to. So I was just, I was loving the ride. I was enjoying it. It was it was great. I was getting to work in professional football, playing these games, incredible stadiums. Um, it was a, a wild, wild ride that I, I, despite the goals being conceded and the goals being scored, I was I was kind of half just enjoying the ride.
1: Yeah. So it was in the, you secured passage to the finals. Did you... Yeah. Brunei last game, was it? Did you, play, did you play last game? Or was it just those three games? No. It was just those, just those three games, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it yeah. came down
2: to goal difference. Um, and we were sitting watching the, it the Cambodia game. And we were sure that Cambodia and Laos had some agreement that they were just letting yeah. Cambodia score left, right and centre. And we were sitting. me and Jimmy were sitting there. We, he just stepped aside and let the guy run through and score. And, and we were sure that something was going on. Um, But, you know, we got through in the end anyway. And and interestingly, I had a discussion with um, the British head coach of Lau after the game that we played against them. Um, And that was the game where we scored, you know, really late on in the 94th minute with Jimmy's head. And he, to this day, is sure that the keeper was uh, influenced not to come out and take that ball. Yeah, he he swears blind that he's never seen the keeper do that before. Keeper's normally quite good in the air, so he said. And I remember talking to him after the press conference. He said he's never seen his keeper not come out and clear that ball. And the fact that he kind of took two steps forward and stood still, and then Jimmy's big head just knocked it past him. He, <laughs> said he, was, he was sure something was going on. But um, no, I just told him it was, it was all planned. Yeah. It was tra- training I, work.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that maybe he's trying to take the gloss off, the, <laughs> off that particular result and that campaign, because like you said, I mean... I, I can't remember who qualified out in that group. then. Did Cambodia qualify? No, it was and, us and that Cam- oh, Cambodia just below us win. by one. So they, so they were so they were the ones that missed out. Oh, right, well, fair enough. He wouldn't have any reason to to to, ah. to say that otherwise. Then, um, but yeah, I mean that that group. I'm, I'm thinking back to that group because I I didn't participate in that particular competition. So at the culmination of that that segment of the Suzuki Cup, did you sort of have an inkling that, OK, when we go there, we, we, might, we might do all right here? Or was it just a case of, well, I'm just, I'm just happy that we qualified and, and, and anything sort of thereafter, anything that happens in, in Vietnam is just a bonus? I think the benefit of a little bit of naivety going into that job
2: was that I only thought one game at a time because I, I really didn't have the experience to OK, well, we've been here before. This is what we need to do. I didn't have that in my locker. So it was just... Right, the next game we're playing is Cambodia, and they play kind of all-out attack, but are not very good at the back. So if we play counter attack, I think we might be able to beat. You know, it was, it was more that kind of mm. approach. I, I didn't, I didn't really have the experience to say, right, we're going to need to do this, and and when we get to this point, we're going to need to do this. I've never been to that point before. Probably the players were more experienced than I was in terms of of playing at these competitions. So the fact that we went in and tried to really press the opposition and play higher at the pitch. And I kept the defensive line quite high. I wanted Rob quite high. Um, once we qualified, there was, once I sat down and thought about it and looked and, and watched some of the teams that we were going to play against, uh, especially when the draw was made, I thought, right, we, we can't do the same thing here because we'll just get annihilated. We're not, we're not experienced enough to go high on teams and try and press them all over the place. Um, and the more I kind of watched us play and, and, and analysed the games we, what we played previously, we were obviously bigger and stronger than a lot of the teams. Now, that might not be something that, you know, is is particularly uh, sought after. You know, you you prefer more technical players and a more technical pattern of play, if you like. But one of the things I knew we were good at is is being strong and being tough and being difficult to beat. So... Going into the finals, we started a lot of work on just staying deeper, just just trying not to go too high. Work on counterattacks, use uh, use wide areas, and, and try and get the ball high to to fill and to Ian as quick as we can, and then move up the pitch. But the fullbacks not go too high. Don't bring that defensive line too high, and it's not let's not get played through. We worked a lot on that, so it was a real change, you know, in technical input, if you like, um, between the qualifiers and the, and the finals. But in terms of my expectation. And, uh, you know, I didn't, again, I I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough in the locker to say, well, you know, I I know this team's going to be this and this team's going to be I was just watching videos and
1: and making assumptions. In, in, In your sort of naive approach then, I mean, would you, would you say that that was actually in retrospect beneficial given the personnel that you had at your disposal and given the scenario that everyone found themselves in? Because I'm looking at this now with, you know, 10 years experience and uh, 10 years perspective uh, on my side. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what, if if we'd have had a coach or if you, for example, had tried to be a lot more technical, if you had tried to maybe use that as a platform to try to demonstrate, you know, how proficient you were as a coach, we probably would have found ourselves in big trouble. Yeah. Because I, I, I'm looking at it from the perspective of, if you try to overcoach 11 players, six of whom, would probably be able to understand and grasp the concept, five of whom probably would have been like, oh, that's, straight, mm. that's straight over my head and wouldn't have been able to communicate that with you either yeah. if they didn't understand, because that, that's not in the culture. It's, yeah, okay, I understand, and then before you know it, we get beat 7 nil by Singapore and then you realise that at the stand. Um, so, do you think, like you said, in, in retrospect, is that actually that sort of naive approach and perhaps that less, is um, so it giving more ownership to the players on the pitch and then just having a very clear and concise game plan with very limited instructions, very just sort of, this is a very simple game plan, follow it to as best of your ability and let's see where it lands us. Do you think in retrospect that was actually probably the best thing for that team at that given point in time?
2: Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to tell you I planned that. And that, that was my thought process. And, it, you know, I think at the time there was, if I'm being honest in putting cards on the table, there was a huge amount of luck, a huge amount of luck. You know, 94th, we hit three three 94th minute equalizers in a row in, you know, in, I think in the long 10 cup, we equalized the game. And then we, we equalized against, what is it? Uh, Lau in the 94th minute with Jimmy's header. And then we got your goal against Singapore. You know, we, we, had a, we had this habit of coming back late. And I think one thing I did recognize was the fact that I didn't have enough time to work with the players. I wasn't able to work with the players that were going to end up on the pitch for an amount of time before that, because they would fly in a week, two days, four days, you know, before games. Um, I didn't really have an awful lot of time with the full 11s, the full, the full squad. So I needed to create something where players could come in and out and it was fairly simple to take on board. And it was it was fairly easy to understand. This is what we need to do. And that was born, without doubt, out of naivety. That was born out of, I think, probably... <sighs> I don't want to do myself out of disservice. You know, I don't want to do myself out of disservice, but a fairly good evaluation of what we had and, and what we could do. And knowing that if we try and do too much against better teams, they'll do it better than we can and just annihilate us, like you just said. But if we can find something that we can cling to that we know we're good at, that we know that, listen, we, we can do this better than anyone else. We might not match you on this, 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 and this, but we can do this. And we always had size, we had physicality, we had, a, we had that in our back pocket. Mm. So, you know, I, I think you're right. A little bit of naivety uh, really helped that situation. I wasn't doing the same amount of, of research I put into games now. I wasn't studying set pieces. I wasn't going through because I didn't know I had to. Christ, I was, you <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I had to. I do now. Um, but it was more trying to get a plan together that everyone knew and understood. Um, there was a lot of other, you know, sub-stories going on as well. You had the, 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 the locals and foreigners' conflict was quite strong at that point as well. You had guys like Chifi, who I remember sitting in the hotel. Uh, the, first, the first couple of days we were in the hotel in Laos, in Vichen. In, uh, and if I stood up and addressed... That side of the room, without opening my body to the local guys, chiefy would pull me up on it. He'd be like, coach, can you just make sure you're equal so that I'd have to make sure. And genuinely, he's pulled me up on this so many times that I would have to stand and make sure that I was equal to the foreigners sitting together with all the locals sitting together. And in the end, I just I had enough of, of being pulled up by Chiefy, And I said, right, we're going to set new rules here. On every table, there will be fines handed out if there are more than three foreigners sitting at a table. So it meant that we had to do this. We had to, you couldn't just have locals over there and foreign guys over there. It, it couldn't happen anymore because I felt fed up of getting pulled up by Chiefy every five minutes. <laughs> he was just on my case, nonstop. And I pulled Chiefie and, and Ali to one side and I just said, listen, boys, if we're going to do anything here, we've got to do this together. And we can't, we, we can't go through this whole, you know, it's us and them. That's not going to work because at the end of the day, we're all one team. And we did a lot of stuff off the pitch. You know, we did um, we did a day away in, in one of the, the first training camps. We were down in Davao, and we were trying to bring people together. And we, we played a lot of a lot of little games, and just a lot of stuff off the pitch where we really tried to work on getting that togetherness, as opposed to locals and foreigners. And all the local guys could sit and have their lunch, and then all the foreigners would sit over there and have their lunch. And one of the one of the nicest things that I know you weren't there, Chris, but one of the nicest things that happened was after the last game in Laos where we knew we'd qualified, we were having a little bit of a celebration and, and we were staying in kind of a decent hotel and downstairs in the hotel there was a nightclub. And I said to the boss, I said, Dan, can we take the boys into the nightclub tonight? We've, we're finished, we're flying home, we've got no more games, we've succeeded, you know, I think they deserve, the boys deserve a little pat on the back and a little bit of enjoyment. So we went down into this nightclub and, and I mean, it was, it was dead. I mean, it's... it's there wasn't anyone in there, but we had a great time. And one of the things I'll always remember is that Neil said, Right, this night's on me. And he put his credit card behind the bar. So not many of the local guys were drinking that much. It wasn't kind of an alcohol fueled whatever, but it was they were able to have a drink with their teammates, an adult drink, not a, not a Coke. <laughs> they were able to have an adult drink, sit there with their teammates. And bless him, Neil put his card behind the bar and paid for it. Or he bought bottles for everybody. That was that's, such was the camaraderie and, and, you know, uh, and what Neil brought to the table in his personality. But that, just that celebration, all being able to sit together, the plane ride home was great. We were all laughing and joking with each other. There was so much more integration going on that helped so much more on the pitch, you know, get, get that message across. And it was quite a simplistic message on the pitch, but that work done off the pitch, I think, helped so much in terms of the performances that we saw. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, obviously that was before before I was there. So that's that's I, I wasn't. First of all, I'm, I'm shocked that Neil bought a drink. I don't believe that story for a second. It must have been his mum and dad's credit card or something. Um, <laughs> but but no, I, I, I've it's often been the sort of the stumbling block I felt with the national team is is when i I've, I've been part of the national team where it's been quite toxic, and you, you felt the difference in the groups or uh friction with whatever uh, it might be the federation it might be coaching staff or whatever and, um that was that was uh, again it was it was such a unique blend of misfits yeah. almost you know that 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 group that we had probably you included actually when you were yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you throw you in, into that mix yeah um so, yeah, it, it's, I, I, never, I never knew that so much work had gone into it because obviously I, I came in. I was the last one in, in the group pretty much. Um, do, you, do
2: you know how but, you got involved? Uh,
1: I, sort, I mean, I sort of know a little bit of the story from Ali. Ali gave me his rendition, but, but go ahead. I'm interested to hear what your, <laughs> your version is because it might be different to his.
2: My version was that I was told um, we were down a midfielder and I had the opportunity to bring in a midfielder. And Dan sat me down and he said, right, you have the choice of two midfielders. You can either have Simon Greatwich or Chris Greatwich. I was like, right, are these the only two we have available? I mean, what, What's? where are these coming from? Do we have a number? No, 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 it's, it's either Simon or Chris. And Simon hadn't been involved up until that point because I was told on lots of different fronts that he'd been injured and he was coming back from an, from, a, from surgery and he was just starting to get his fitness back.
1: Yeah.
2: I was also told that you'd played a big part in previous national team games. You were a lot more experienced. And going into these, what were going to be really tough games, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to take experience over youth. And I, <laughs> it's probably one of the areas where I look back and I know we've had this discussion privately and I've had a private discussion with Simon. And I've, I've talked a lot about my naivety back in that time. And I look back at mistakes I've made. And that was one of the mistakes I made. Not, not bringing you into the team. Yeah, I
1: was going to say. that's the no, that, way that, you're going with this one.
2: That turned out to be all right. It was how I handled not bringing Simon into the team. That was one of the things that I look back at. And, um, you know, it was something I had to deal with when I got back to Manila to join Moralco. Because obviously I was now... Simon said, coach. Yeah, So we had to sit down and have that discussion. And fair play to him. you know, He, he could have been really, really difficult. But we sat down and went through it. And I, and I apologised to him because uh, at the time, I didn't have that experience to know what I was doing. And I, I, that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's just simply saying, now I look back at it and I think, I should have handled that a lot better. I was, I was mm. just given two players to deal with. And I had that many other things going on to, or a decision to be made between two players. Was it Simon or was it Chris? Now Simon got me the job. But he was coming back from an injury. And I, I didn't know, I didn't have any way of evaluating either of you. No way at all. And I just had to make a decision based on, well, Chris is fit. He's got more games under his belt. Simon, I don't know if he's a better player or not. Um, you'll tell me he's not for sure. But I, I don't know if he is or not. I'm going to go with experience because I know Chris will bring that. And given what I just said about a lot of the stuff we've done off the pitch, I knew someone like yourself would add to that. I didn't I, I knew about Simon, I know he's a great personality, he's a great person to have around. And um, you know, I, I felt for quite a long time I'd done a, a disservice to him. And in hindsight and the knowledge I have now, I would like to have handled that better. But I was that I made that decision and then moved on to the next decision, and the next decision, and we haven't got tracksuits and we get measured for our kit we're flying next week the military guys can't fly right why can't the military guys fly there was just an endless list of things that I was dealing with but in hindsight that's one of the things i think back at and think you know what i wouldn't do that these days i wouldn't I, I know i wouldn't do that now and i would tell coaches they're wrong to do that now yeah if, pick one deal with the other the one that's happy he's he's happy he's in the yeah. other one is not happy and given the fact that he's your brother firstly secondly he's the one that got me the job i should have dealt with that a lot better but it was it was Literally a fifty-fifty flip of the coin. And as it turned out, you know I've worked for Simon for, for two years now. Um you could argue the decision was the right one.
1: Well, I mean it worked. it obviously or, worked out. Um I, I would say it <laughs> probably was the wrong decision. Like I, I don't know who go oh, I was definitely not fit. I don't think <laughs> I played a game. I don't think I played a game in nine months. No 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 longer 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 because it was December. I hadn't played a game in 10 months because the last game I played was uh was under Dez and we played uh a Taiwanese club team. And um Dez, Dez didn't select me for the starting 11 for the first game against Taiwan. Um opted for I think Manny and Jace. And then second game I played with a bunch of other scrubs, in at the airport, is when he told me that I was I would never play, I was not going to play Super Cup 2010. So this would have been January, I think January or February that year. I said no. I said I think I'll play, mate. I think I'll play. He said no, no, no. I don't think you. I said no. I think I think I'll I think I'll make more, my way into it, and obviously, think things kind of transpire. But um, yeah, I remember being like really unfit. I mean, like I hadn't trained. I don't think I even kicked the ball. And uh, I remember Ali. Things to Ali about it and he's like no I think he's gonna he's gonna we're gonna we're gonna, gonna fly you out and I was like no I don't said, no I don't think I don't think it's just don't see it happening because I think Neil flew out maybe a couple of days before me and I was with Neil we went to watch a game together yeah and then like yeah sort of the situation that happens like real quick like uh, I got a phone call my flights were booked and then I was literally in it like flying I flew out that day yeah um and then, yeah, then, we, then obviously we came in Met you guys. I think maybe I can't remember Singapore. Maybe remember, wherever, wherever the connecting flight was, I managed to get a flight that came with you guys. And then we flew into, and then we flew into um into Vietnam. So yeah. I was actually on the flight with you guys when you when you guys flew in. So now, no but, time in Manila. No no training sessions in Manila. You were literally straight into no 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 straight in straight. Into and I think Australia. I think we even I think we had one training at the stadium, and that was all I can remember, which would have been the day before. And then, the, then, the, and then the first game. But uh, one of the things I'm quite interested in, because obviously, I, like I said, at the top of the conversation, we, we, we as players, we all saw things from from the players' perspective, but we didn't really get to see the sort of behind the scenes stuff. I've managed to experience it a little bit now since since being involved with the campaign, um, uh, the last Suzuki campaign from a coach's perspective. But how, how did you sort of find that? Um, as a sort of obviously a massive upgrade to what you're what you were used to in terms of yeah, yeah. you know having to go and do the press conferences you know obviously everything's all dressed up it's 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 a completely different level I'm assuming even from the qualifiers how did you find that as a coach transitioning from you know what you were used to back in the UK where I, I'm assuming it's just you know man and his dog <laughs> you know the, the conducting yeah. the interviews after the game to like this you know full blown uh, media spectacle you know Fox Sports uh, beaming it to you know hundreds of millions across southeast asia
2: it was it it all felt very dreamlike it felt very i mean there was a, there was an overwhelming feeling of privilege with pretty much everything i did from every meeting every discussion every training session every game um but the, the bit that that i struggled with was not necessarily the political side of things but was the organisation and logistical side of it because i've only been a, a was only a, an on-field technical coach and I was fine at that and we were doing okay you know we qualified and we had a plan and, and and I enjoyed the training sessions and got on with all the players but every time we went into a meeting or we were having discussions about what kit we were going to wear where we were going to get the kit from you know we, we played that long tank cup in kit that we got measured for that someone made in a garage somewhere I mean it didn't have any brands on it it was like a wetsuit material that and the players will tell you it's, it was like playing in a wetsuit. The arms cut off. It was so heavy when it got wet. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and then you see the Hong Kong boys came in at the time, just everything Adidas. I'm thinking to myself, what, what is going on here? We must have a sponsor. We must have kit somewhere. We can't go into this, this competition where we're in the elite Southeast Asian, you know, on live TV, playing these games against big opposition in big stadiums. And we don't even have a kit sponsor. We're going to ask Jim down the road to make us another set twenty so that we look okay. It, we, we, can't, we can't do that. And right up until, I think it was the day before we left Vietnam, we still didn't have any kit delivered from Mizuno because there was this ongoing battle between um, the Federation and Mizuno. Mizuno promised this and it kept going missing. Every time I went in to, to the Federation to have a meeting, everyone's got new uniforms on and they've all got new tracksuits on. I'm like, what? The players don't have tracksuits, but all staff, the receptionist has got a brand new tracksuit on. I don't have a new tracksuit. I haven't got anything that's got SM on it. I haven't even got a Filipino badge on my chest. Yet everyone in the federation is rocking new outfits. What is going on here? That was the bit that I couldn't get my head around. That was the the whole frustration of the kind of the logistical side of it was was just a constant headache that I've never had to deal with before. The playing side was easy. That was football. I, I was familiar with football. And all right, the level was different, but I was familiar with what happened on a pitch, the ins and outs, and what we needed to do to get, to, to get a result. But the whole being a head coach and dealing with this whole circus that went on around you, and I use that in a very specific term, circus that went on around you. This is going to happen, but it's going to happen tomorrow. No, it happens next week. We're going to get this... No, we're not getting used to uniform. And don't forget, at the time, we had two presidents. so all this was going on at the same time i didn't know who to speak to this guy's calling me into a meeting this guy's calling me into a meeting it i i did just did not understand what was going on off the pitch and obviously actually took sanctuary in training sessions kind of stayed away and just went to training and was around the boys and didn't really deal with any of the staff i just was with the boys all the time um that was more the difficult side of things not necessarily the actual gains and and the training because that's football, and I think uh, you know I, one of the players could have stepped out and took a training session. But actually, to go in and deal with people and this whole political battle that was going on in the boardroom between two presidents at the time, and that was just a nightmare to deal with. I, and I was treading so carefully because my job was on the line. I didn't want to piss one guy off because then he might get in power, and he sacked me. So <laughs> it was <laughs> it was really quite difficult. Um, that. The, the, the run up to Suzuki Cup and actually before we got to Vietnam, those are my main memories are really dealing with everything that went on off the pitch.
0: Then you move into Singapore. How much did you know about Singapore at the time? Obviously, man, they were like Southeast Asian royalty at that point. They, were, they had won so many Suzuki Cups and obviously were a huge favorite going into that first game. Did that play in your mind at all? Or was it just, okay, here's our first game. Let's get on with it. And what did you say to the, the team prior to that match?
2: In the lead up to that game, I was really pissed off. Because me and Chris, I think, did you come into the press conference with me? Where the first one where we got introduced to everybody?
1: I came in the second one. The second one. I didn't do the, I didn't do the first one.
2: So I think it might have been... I remember you being and, pissed off. Yeah. It was me been Rob. Me and, I think yeah. it was Rob. Um, we sat in the middle and, you know, like you were saying, I, I wasn't used to press conferences. I wasn't really sure how they all worked. But you had all the coaches and, and all they were doing was going back and forth to each other. And I was just sat in the middle. I, I could have been, you know, having a cup of tea at the time. No one would have actually even noticed. And all they were talking about was how many goals they were going to score against the Philippines. And uh, I think the Vietnam coach, Callisto, said... You know, how many goals Singapore score against the Philippines is going to be very important. We need to make sure we score more than them against the Philippines. It wasn't even a a discussion about winning the game. It was arrogant to the point of being offensive. And I came out of that press conference going, not having that. Really not having that at all. That really wasn't fair. And knowing, you know, knowing the players I had and, and, and knowing what it, what we'd had to do to get there, to get through qualifying, you know, we we're already quite happy with ourselves about that. It just all spurred it spurred me on. It motivated me to make sure that I tried to cover as many bases as I could. And even now, looking back at what I did, I didn't do as much as I could have. That I would have done now. And I think you've alluded to the fact that, that might have actually helped a little bit. Um, but yeah, there was. I, I was quite angry going into that first game against Singapore. I really wanted to make sure we got something out of the game. It, by by any means, um, I didn't watch too much of Singapore. I knew some of their players. I knew it was all about Duric. If we stopped Duric and we stopped uh, his, I think there was another foreigner, a uh, uh, naturalized foreigner in midfield, um, Mustafi. I think if we stopped him and stopped Duric, we'd be all right. So sitting back deeper and, and you know, really trying to make sure we shut down that midfield and, and sat the defence on the edge of the box. Uh, I knew we'd make it hard for him. Um, and then, you know, the gods conspired to put you in the right in the right position as that cross was made from Jimmy and um, we got the draw. And even after the game, uh, Neil Bennett, Daniel Bennett came to me after the game and he, he pulled his ACL in that game. He damaged his ACL. And he said, he doesn't think we'd have got the win if he hadn't come off the pitch. He stayed on the pitch, and because he stayed on the pitch, as that cross from Jimmy's coming in, he couldn't stretch his leg out far enough because his knee was killing him. So he couldn't stretch his knee out to try and intercept it, and in which case it ended up at your foot and you put it in the back of the net. Arguably had he gone off the pitch and there'd been a sub who was maybe in the right position, might have stretched his I mean ifs and buts, but you know they're they're the little things I remember about those times and that goal I don't think I've ever had a feeling in football
1: when that goal hit the back of the net, like that.
2: Little so did funny. I know what little did I know what was coming, but at that yeah, point it, it's never funny.
1: felt it's like fun- that. It's funny you bring that up. I said the same mm. with Anton's Anton did his podcast with us. And I brought that and I brought that very that very point up. You know, like you talk about you talk about luck or, or things that sort of fall into your lap. Like I don't know if you remember the tackle that he put in on Bennett, maybe like a few minutes before. But it was disgusting. It was like it <laughs> what, was like Anton, it was, you're joking. Yeah, it was so bad. It was awful. And I remember what looking at Bennett thinking like, Oh, he's he's, he's gonna be done. He's gonna be done. And then I remember I don't know if he came off the pitch and came back on. Um, but I was like, he, he can't even move. I was like, he, yeah. the bloke can't even move. And then if you actually watch that goal back, he's stiff as a board and he made yeah. absolutely no attempt at putting a block in. And I've got a picture. I've got a picture of, it must have been, it's like a sequence of pictures. And there's this one where I basically, I put it in and then I've just run off. And you see Bennett's like probably two yards away from me, or a yard away from me. But, I mean, he probably one of the best defenders in South East Asia at that time. Yeah, under normal circumstances, he puts the block in there for sure. Um, so no, I totally agree with that. It's quite interesting that you you still you still see that because I think had that incident not occurred a few moments earlier, then that that goal would probably have, probably would never have happened. Um, Do you know what? Chris, no,
2: whenever I've whenever since that day the Singapore and the Vietnam games, since those days and, and all the adversity I've been through since then, the ups and downs and the losing games and the winning games and I talk about how hard it is to lose games. Whenever I'm feeling crap about what we've done or, or oh, we lost that game, I can easily just go back onto YouTube and watch those highlights and straight away I'm through the roof again. Straight away I'm you know, I'm getting goosebumps at, at watching you score and, and watching Rob make tackles and and watching Heneire celebrate at the end, down on his knees, you know, I, I, I go back and relive it quite often, and it's helped me so many times over the last ten years to kind of just deal with some of the crap that football throws at you at this level.
1: What? Why? Like uh, what? Why? I, 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 like you said, we, we, we all have our own. Uh, we text each other after Rob's interview, and we said like it's always like different people's perspective. But I'm also quite keen to see like why. Why did it resonate with you so much? Like for me, like it was different to Rob. And I think we, we illustrated mm. that in our, in our back and forth. Like for me, uh, it's, it's, I'll, I'll maybe go into it later. For me, it was a lot of vindication because I'd spent a lot of years sort of in the wilderness. And in my own personal life at that time, I really didn't know where my life was going. I was coaching America, but I felt a little bit of a shadow of myself. Yeah. Like, I felt, you know, as a sort of 15, 16-year-old kid, I, I always saw myself as being, I, you know, I, I, I could definitely see myself playing at the pious level. And then, you know, you find yourself sort of slipping down the leagues or playing at lower levels and not even cutting it at that level. And you think, is this is this the fall from grace that people warn you about when you're a kid? Do you know what I mean? And it, it does play with your mind a little bit. It plays with your your ego. And, and, you know, I felt sort of a lot of vindication in myself sort of in that moment. I can always, like sense of gratification. Like, nah, it was... For me personally, it was... Yeah, I feel vindicated. I feel vindicated in that moment. And like you said, you go back and you can relive it and it's it's, it's, it's nice to sort of remember how you felt before that and how everything's changed since. With Rob, it was... He was talking about how, you know, he'd been through some dark periods and, and disillusionment with football in general. You know, bad experiences, people screwing him over, um, you know, not getting contracts that he should have got, et cetera, et cetera. And I know he was pretty... Done with. I don't think. Well, he wasn't play, really playing f- football in, in the UK at the time because he just he felt so disenfranchised from that whole yeah. football yeah. environment. It Ascot to, to, United so, or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so so ridiculous, you know. Yeah. So, and obviously, you don't have the attachment that say you, um, Rob, and I might have. Because of the fact that we grow up with it, you know, we grow up. I certainly was in a household where my mum would always be like, oh, "I'll be nice if you pay for the Philippines one day." I know Rob's mum would say that, but he sort of took it a little less seriously. Well, I, I was quite serious about it, even from quite a young age. So, from from your perspective, as someone sort of detached from that, from a sort of, you know, there is no real attachment for, to to the Philippines from a sense no. of, you know, you didn't grow up, you know aspiring to coach the Philippine national team that was never an aspiration of yours so why, no. why does it resonate with you so much that, that in, in that particular moment that, that gives you such a sense of pride
2: um, you're right it, it wasn't the fact that it was the Philippines it was the fact that I was doing a job that nearly everyone I ever grew up with would dream to do and from the outset I had people going how the hell did you get that and and why on earth do you think you're going to be successful? And, and what happens if it all fails? And, and you, I had no idea what was going to happen. I, I had no idea if I could even do the job. I, I took it based on the fact that I could never turn it down and I'd never live with myself if I ever did. If I went there and lost all the games and came home, at least I could say I could go back to my development job with Brighton and Ove Albion and say I've been a national team head coach. And, and at the time, that's what I thought would happen. You know, there was the point where I'm thinking can't do this, this is, this is a serious level now, I'm, up a, I'm, I'm in front of 40,000 in the stadium I've never played in front of 40,000 there was a for me it was, it was detached from the playing side and it was detached from the Philippines, it was more the messages and the support that I was getting from home and this is where I started to choke up, is that people couldn't believe what I was doing and I'm blessed to have represented them in the way they did. But coming home from a game and getting messages from my dad and all my family and stories of people at work bringing their laptops in and watching the games <laughs> because I'm, just because I'm coaching, not because they love the Philippines, but because it's. Yeah, me. yeah of course. Yeah. Not, 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 you know, Jose Mourinho, but it's me standing on the sideline, their mate from school. Um had all the Worthing fans messaging me. I had, I just got so, I got inundated with messages from people at home, people who just found out about my story. And, and, and it was more just, I felt all of those people standing behind me every single time we played, as well as the country. I mean, there wasn't that much support coming from the Philippines because they, it wasn't really a football nation. So it wasn't, there was interest. People always would want us to do well, but it wasn't what you'd call fierce support but to get some of the messages I was getting from at home it, I just remember a lot of the feelings that I had. I mean, I remember standing in the Sultan before the semi-final and I, we'll, we'll get to that. I cried my eyes out. I'm standing there looking at the stadium from the hotel room thinking, holy shit, <laughs> what am I doing here? And it just, it, I can't put into words, the emotions that I felt going through that whole run for that for that eight months from being here at Worthing to then I'm um, now national team to then hang on a sec, we qualified to, oh my God, we're in the semi-final. Um, in such a short space of time, it just wasn't something that I was ready for. And, and I had to, every time we played, I had to suck up my emotions so much. it, it I found it really, really challenging just to walk out of the hotel room And not let anybody know that i've got tears in my eyes not not (laughs) uh, uh, and i mean i I mean that honestly and openly i i I was overcome with the amount of support i got from home and knowing what it meant to people at home that their friend was doing something they've always dreamed of doing and and after that you know when i had the opportunity um that's one of my tattoos and one of the tattoos that means a lot to me. And I've got that little tattoo on my hand there, that little heart. And that really is its the only one I see when I'm coaching because obviously I've got a suit on or whatever to there and I look down and I see that. And it just reminds me of how many people are supporting me, no matter what the score is, no matter what the manager's saying, no matter when, under what pressure I'm under. There will always, always be people at home who are wanting me to do well. And, and that, that's really why it means so much to me, those games, is that just, I put myself straight back in that situation, and
1: I'm, and the feelings just overcome me. Is it, is it a bit of vindication for you also? Do you think? Like, I, I can imagine, you know, knowing you as, a, as an individual as well. There must have been an element of, like, like you sort of alluding to. I've, I haven't coached at this level before. I haven't played at this level before. Are people saying? What's this guy from Worthing doing? You know, meeting up with on on this level. Um, you know, I'm sure for as many messages of support that you have back home, there's probably you know there's there's ten times the number that's probably you know wanting you to fail or saying, "Oh, what's what?" You know, he he come from this level. He can't coach at this at that sort of level. What's he doing being a national team job? Did did you also get that sort of sense of you know? No, I I'm here. I'm here, and not only am I. I'm I here at this level now, but I'm, I'm, I'm succeeding. Was there ever that sort of element to it? Honestly, well, no. Do you think? There, there, was no. Never,
2: there was never really a, any sort of negative I took. I was just riding the wave. But one thing I did recognise was the fact this was a, an incredible opportunity for me. And if I could just put a few results together, this might, you know, I've always, I've always wanted, I wanted to be a professional footballer. Who, you know, who didn't? I always wanted to be a pro, but I was never good enough. I've got a decent left foot and a terrible right foot. And it just didn't work out. It never would. And the only other way for me to get back into professional football was to coach. So I started coaching in the States and blah, blah, blah. So to get to that point where I've got a real opportunity here, a tangible, uh, realistic opportunity of making a career from this, if I can just pull out a couple of results here on the bigger stage. And... You always, you always dream you can do it and you're telling yourself you can and you're I was incredibly intimidated by these games. I don't have the experience, so I was intimidated going to these games. And even pulling in people like you and dealing with people like Neil, you know, you've been at a lot higher level than I've ever been at, yet I'm the one standing in front of you telling you what to do. I was always so conscious and aware of that. And that I think that affected a little bit how I talk to people. I would, and, and still to this day does. It, I think it's really helped me over the last 10 years is that knowledge that I've not played at that level. So I have to kind of maybe try and do things a bit different, lean on other people's experience a bit more. Um, but there wasn't much negativity, but I was always aware of the opportunity that was in front of me and, and that this could be something that might just lead into a career.
0: That Singapore result was pretty incredible. I think when we talked to Rob about it, um, that was the highlight for him. That, specific feeling of Chris scoring and knowing that you guys got a point against Singapore. Was there anything that changed between you and your demeanour between the Singapore game and the Vietnam game?
2: Honestly, no. Now, Like I said, it was, it was always one game at a time. I, I, never, I never planned, right, we're going to do this, 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 and this. If anything, myself and Dan Palami talked in the lead-up to the, the the finals games and we said, right, we'll try and get what we can against Singapore. We try and get a draw against Singapore. We'll probably lose the game against Vietnam and we'll try and get a point against uh, Myanmar. And that was the plan, to to try and get two draws. That was it. But actually, to get that draw and the manner it came, I mean, who doesn't love a last-minute goal? It is one of the most incredible feelings. So the way it came and and, and, and that, the way they talked about us beforehand, you know, I really was I was quite het up at the way that they disrespected all of us, not just me, but the team and just throwing our chances out like there was nothing. But I remember very clearly after the game, um, Rady Avramovic came over after the game and and we, as the coaches walked towards each other and, you know, I'm trying not to be celebrating got a smile on my face because the other coaches coming across, I'm trying to be respectful. I'm inside. I'm all over the place, but I, I walk over, shake his hand, he put his arm around me and he said, you fucking deserve that. You deserve that. And I'll never forget because the reaction from the other coach against Vietnam was the opposite. Totally dismissive. No, no respect whatsoever to me or the players who just changed history. No respect. Raddy was respectful enough to put his arm around and, and, and knew what we'd just done and was aware of it and, and gave us credit for it, even though it may cost him, and it did cost him his place in you know, the, the semifinals. finals but he still had the uh the respect and, and the professionalism to to reward credit or, or reward the hard work that we put in
0: i recall that moment very clearly that the that uh, the vietnam coach had refused to your handshake did he say anything this is actually a question from one of our listeners right now raymond arthur torres who who chimed in over the the facebook live asking was there any words exchanged between the two of you because that was a pretty iconic moment
2: again uh I was new to the stage and I'm very, I was very much trying to be the humble, um, you know, we were lucky. It was our day. Whatever happened, the moon's aligned. However you want to, uh, I went over to shake his hand and um, and was trying not to be over the top. Cause that, that can be a bit annoying sometimes when the opposition coach comes across and he's bouncing around and laughing. At you. I, I was trying to be very respectful of him and he just put his hand away. Like this and he just said, this not football. This is not football if this is football, I feel sorry for you. This is not football. And he just walked away from me. Um, to which I might have said something to him and walked away. Which was probably two short words, one beginning with F, the other one ending in F. Um, <laughs> but I can't explain any more than that.
0: It was a pretty quiet stadium after. What was that feeling like?
2: Uh, that's That's... That feeling is the that game is my highlight, I mean, I know Rob said about Singapore, and that that was a pretty uh memorable one, but the fact that it was Vietnam, the fact that it was defending champions, the fact that it was in the Maiden Stadium in Hanoi, it was full of Vietnamese um, and the way it was done and the stories behind it you know i was I was just I remember the lead up to the game I was really unsure of phil and, and I know we've talked we talked about this a lot, but For me as a professional coach now, looking back at that, that was the single most impressive performance I've ever seen from a professional footballer. To get through, what, 70, 75 minutes the way he did with the illness that he he had, Um, to this day I have no idea how he got through that game, how sick he actually was. Um, But still, you know, I'm scratching my head thinking, right, well, we've got... uh, well, who else have we got? Who else can play striker if we drop Phil? Um, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And then when Phil said, I can play, I said, are you sure? You know, you're, you're quite sick. No, I can do it. I can play. And when that goal goes in and he turns around and does his celebration, you know, you can see it's written all over his face. He, he just, he's got nothing left. Absolutely nothing left. It was it was a phenomenal performance from from an, an individual performance that, um, I will remember as long as I'm in this game.
0: That was incredible. I mean, I, I, you know, to hear this and and Chris talks about it a lot. It's, it's, it's always fascinating for us to listen to all the different sides of that specific story because it was such a tremendous moment lived by so many people um, during that that specific time. You know, for us at home, it was weird. It was you you couldn't believe it like every minute that passed on it's like what we're in the lead this doesn't make any sense like um and then you you get that second goal and it's just it it's it's you know it's challenging your belief in reality in that specific moment because you're you're used to being demolished 5-0 or 7-0 you know to get a goal if you're losing a game is already spectacular in itself but to be winning and against Vietnam against a team that everybody had Assume we're gonna, you know, really smash us. It was just such a difficult thing to wrap your head around, you know? And then after that game, everything changes. All of our lives change. I mean, to have a career in football, for you to go on to, you know, to have the fantastic career you've had as a coach, for everyone, everyone involved, yeah. our lives changed. It, ne- it was never the same after that. And be on the sideline there in your suit only coach to be wearing a suit by the way ever since um what was that like i mean you know like did you obviously you know at the time maybe you didn't have an opportunity to to know the gravity of that moment but man that must have been quite quite an experience
2: it's quite difficult to put into words it's quite difficult not to get emotional talking about it because what it meant to so many people. I mean, you, you hope in every situation, every training session you go into, and I'm sure Chris will back me up on this, that when you're working with kids, you, you just hope to have a, a, an impact. You, you hope to have some sort of influence. You hope to teach them something, to give them an experience, to, that they go home and talk to their parents and say, Do you know what, I really enjoyed working with Coach Chris or Coach Simon today. Uh, um, I really want to play football. And, and you you hope you at a younger level you inject that, love of the game into them. But to be a national team head coach and to look back at my time in the Philippines and to have have been a part of the change, the the love of the game for, for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people now in the Philippines, to have been a part of that game. I tell the story a lot that how it had such an impact. The game against Singapore wasn't live on TV. But I've got the the headline from the game in the, I think, it, whatever it was, Manila Post or something like that, Manila newspaper. And it was something like, um, it was on the front page that we'd equalised against Singapore and we got a 1-1. And it, was, it said in that article that the next game was going to be live on TV against Vietnam. So I imagine hundreds of thousands of people in the Philippines who have had an interest in football and saw that, Oh, hey, we, we got a result against Singapore. That's, that's cool. I've never really watched a game before. I might tune in and, and watch a game for the first time. I have this image that so many people for the very first time are tuning in and watching the Philippines national team live in a major competition. Now, if there is one game as a supporter that you want to watch in your lifetime, that was it. The game where those 11, 12, 13 players changed history for the whole country and and pushed the little snowball off the ledge that's turned into this Azcal's boulder that keeps knocking big teams aside with the way it does. You know, I'm very, very proud to have been a part of that. And and uh, I still, to this day, get recognised as the Philippines coach. I mean, there's been... How many more since me? Yeah, I still get recognized as the Philippines coach in Indonesia and Vietnam and Singapore. I was in Cambodia a while ago. So aren't you Simon of the Azkals coach? Well, not for 10 years, but yeah, I was. Um, An incredible... I will be very, very lucky if I get anywhere near that level again of, of complete and utter enjoyment and emotion... In football again no matter what what level i work at if i can ever get to that level again i will be incredibly blessed it was a a high point that is actually quite difficult to go on from because once you've experienced that you're thinking right what do i do next how do i replicate that how can i get that feeling back again how can i where do i go what do i do um it was, it was a crazy, emotional, incredible time. And, and I think that all those involved in that squad, even his name, Mark Drinkhooth, I think we used to call him Jetlag, came along and never actually played. We nicknamed him Jetlag because he, he was always asleep, always. He was asleep in the restaurant, he was asleep in the bus because he was just never played a game. But he said it was one of the highlights of his career. He never actually played a minute. He was just in training all the time. And even guys like that, I, I just, I think everybody involved in those games who went through the feelings that we went through, the celebrations, I, 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 I think there's a knowing look that we give each other a little nod that we all went through it together. And I, I don't think that will ever change for the rest of our lives. I, I certainly felt it when I came back to the Philippines that everyone that was involved in that squad would kind of, you know, there was a little, a little nod to each other, um, a camaraderie or, a, or a, a common link, if you like, um, i don't i don't I don't know how to put it else into words i I've never experienced anything like it and i will like i say i'll be very very lucky if I get something that feels anything near it
0: It's funny that you say that i mean I would imagine that you know um uh, I had the privilege of being around for your first major trophy um uh for for Loyola when you were new as a as a coach for Morocco and then obviously going on to win the leak in in Indonesia, I I presume that would be a massive high for you as well. Does that, does that not compare? That was, well, see, that was more, that was
2: more what Chris talked about earlier, vindication. That was more, I'd been sacked in the country twice. Um, And I was always, you know, I I don't mind holding my hand up and say where I've done wrong or whether I've made a mistake or, you know, listen, I I understand you've made that decision. That's that's fine. But the first two times I was like, well, this, this just isn't fair. So then to come back and, and come back with Bancara and win the league, you know, there was, like Chris was talking about, massive amount of vindication for me there. That was sticking it up to everybody that had given me stick on social media. Oh, Simon, so you're coming back again. You're a loser the first time. You're going to be a loser again, blah, blah, blah. To go and then win the league, yes, there was a huge amount. But it, it didn't – it was elation, but not, not that original elation with the Azcals after Vietnam. It wasn't. It just wasn't the same. It didn't mean as. It meant a lot. But when Ali turns around and just bursts into tears, and Ali's not the type, you know, for showing any a lot of emotion. You know, he's just he's he's a great guy. But he's big, strong leader, role model, still is to this day. He was he was a uh, intimidating to the locals. Local guys wouldn't tackle him. They just let him do tricks. And he was a centre back doing tricks You're like tackle the guy you got all the local guys standing off him and not wanting to tackle him because he's ali borromeo but then when we beat vietnam and, and the whistle goes and I, I, I look at the players reactions and you've got i think um chris and rob talked about it when henna was down on his knees kissing the ground and and um you got you know yanti basala is running on the pitch and 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 neil running 50 yards to jump on each other of, um, and then Ali just bursting into tears and grabbing Anton, I mean it, it just there was so much emotion and feeling and, and years and years of being smashed to then win that game, it had a totally different feeling from winning the league, the, winning the league was more of a personal thing, it, it, I had much more like you were saying earlier, I, I had much more of an affinity with it, I had more of a, a feeling of involvement in I was a little bit more of a a bystander but just knowing the players and watching their emotions and seeing what it meant to them was, um, a a lot of people will use the term, but I use it specifically and and very definitely about that time, life-changing for me. Absolutely life-changing.
0: Obviously, then there was the the, the semi-finals. Um, Harold Joanne Iniego here on the Facebook um, page was asking, "Do do you think there would have been a difference if we had a home game? Yep, we had an opportunity.
2: Well, there would have been a difference. I'm not going to say it was a positive outcome because we were up against it. But I speaking to Alfred Riedel after the game. who's was the head coach of Indonesia. He was really disappointed that he didn't that we didn't have a home game because he'd watched us in a previous games. And he, I mean, he's a nice guy, and we, we've we've got a good relationship and have since those days. Um, he was wondering how we were going. He was going to break beat us. He just didn't know how to break us down. And I had this, a long discussion with him afterwards and he, he said many times since then that we were the strongest defensive team he's ever seen in Southeast Asia. He said he's never seen people fight like that, especially Southeast Asians. It's just not, you know, to put blood, sweat and tears into performances, he said that's just not something you see. And you don't really see it in the league here. People don't give everything and more. They just don't. It, it's not a thing. Um, so to see a performance like that, he was dreading having to play us in the Boncano, where with all the pressure and all the fans and knowing that he's got smaller players who couldn't really break us down. He was quite keen to see it played in the Philippines where he thought at least the pressure would be on us. We'd have to kind of step out and try and win the game because it's our home game. He thought he might have more of a chance. But as it turned out, you know, um, it just gave us two very, very memorable games.
0: It's still one of my dreams to, to, to have a game in Boncarno. Uh, I still want to go there and feel 80,000 people. You guys obviously had a chance to do that, and to do it twice. <laughs> yeah, has got to be yeah. quite a feeling.
2: I think the first game was our home game, so we had a massive 65 fans there, which was uh, <laughs> <laughs> a huge ticket allocation for us. Um, no, it was... I, I don't think I've ever heard noise like that before. It, it was something else. It was... I was having trouble shouting to my assistants. You know, I I couldn't speak to to anyone on the bench. It was so loud. Trying to get instruction across to anyone, it was just pointless. You you just couldn't communicate. The noise was so loud in that stadium. And that that atmosphere, um, again, something that will live with me for the rest of my life. Uh, And I can't even imagine what it would be like as a player. I mean, how did it feel actually on the pitch like standing on the side of the pitch it was just like you're aware of it all the time I don't know whether you're able to block it out as a player that much noise
1: uh, I mean same same thing I remember the, it must have been about five minutes into the game I remember t- turning around and shouting something to Rob I think I've got an alright vo- I think I've got quite a loud voice <laughs> and then he was looking at me as I'm mouthing the words and he just <laughs> he's just shaking his head like I don't know what you're doing we, to be honest with you, it, I, I quite I, I actually enjoyed it because it just yeah. ends up just being a drone, right? Like, it's, it's not, I don't know, like you're a Celtic fan, so maybe like arguably, I, I'd imagine like Celtic or like um, like a Bo- Boca River game, that type of atmosphere where it's like bouncing. I don't, I don't know if it's any if it's different because I, I feel like maybe their fans are a little more in unison. I don't, I don't know if that, I don't know if you've sort of felt yeah. that. That kind of, but even even in even like when you go to these big, like you say, you go to the Celtic Park. I don't know how many people, sixty thousand or whatever's there. There, there, even in games like, like maybe even in old firm games, but there might be a little lull. There might be like a little lull in in the game where nothing's happening. So there's, but but there just seems to be just uh, just a constant loud noise stop. all through the game. Yeah, I, I
2: don't ever remember it stopping. There was never a point where I could get a message across or shout. I think I honestly think the first goal. Uh, that Gonzalez scored against us came because of the noise. Neil's come flying out to grab it, um, Ray's at full back, and he kind of ducks his head. He thinks Neil's going to get it. He, Neil doesn't come and get it. He leaves, leaves Ray to clear yeah. it. It goes through, and Christian goes around the back and scores. I think that comes through the noise. And I've said that yeah. to Indonesians a few times. I think the supporters won them that goal. Because if it had not been from that, we might have got a point out of that game.
1: Yeah, which I think we probably would have deserved. And, but, you know, when I'm looking back to that second game and you're talking about noise. That is the single loudest noise that I've ever experienced in my life was when that ball left Gonzalez's boot and it's gone into the top corner. I mean, it, it's, it's horrible, isn't it? Because it's a game that's synonymous with us we're losing. But, and, and specifically that moment is... It's bad because we concede the goal, but there is definitely an element of when that ball goes in. I am, forty for the first two or three seconds, I'm like, oh, balls, we're we're done for here." But there's definitely an element for me personally. I'm like, "Oh my gosh, this is ridiculous! This is like, this yeah. is I'm never going to have this again." There's definitely that, and it's it's quite a weird sensation because was you're focused on the game and you know you're now left with this uphill task. But there is also this sense of like, "Oh wow, that is." Yeah. It, it's indescribable, the noise. Like, it, it, it doesn't really transmit from the television. It doesn't transmit um, when you watch it back on the footage. But I, I could just, the noise was, it was just unbelievable. I couldn't, I, I, I don't know what sort of decibel level it was, but I, I can't imagine many things being louder than that. It was, it was I think it, unbelievable. It, it helped the way the ball went in the back of the net as well. I mean, it was a great, it was a
2: great finish. And it had to yeah. be, to, to beat Neil from that distance, it would have to be. But, I mean, I remember the run-up, the, the trying to get from the stadium, or oh, sorry, the hotel to the stadium. Now, the Sultan is, yeah. what, 15 minutes walk to the front door of the Bunkano? And I, I, I've yeah. stayed in the Sultan, I've played in the Bunkano since. But that took us the best part of an hour to get from the hotel to the stadium because that whole central area of Jakarta was just red. It was just people. And there was police on the bus, down the middle of the bus, making sure no one got on the bus or tried to break the bus. The bus was moving at what, two, three kilometres an hour because there was someone in front of the bus pushing people out the way to get the bus forward, push more people forward. Then when we got in the stadium, you know, we're sitting on the bus and the bus is being rocked by the fans. I mean, the, the whole level of intimidation and, oh my God, this is on a whole new level. That, that, what, did, what did you
1: think during that? What did, like, did you think it had an effect?
2: Um... Do you know what? You mentioned this earlier about the factor of naivety. And I think that it helped that we probably weren't at that level before. So it didn't have the same effect that it would have if maybe you've played a few of these games and you know what to expect. And you know what the noise is going to be like. And you know how hard it's going to be if they score. We're all just that. what the hell is going on here? I mean, I don't remember ever being scared that the bus was being rocked back and forwards. There wasn't that feeling. But knowing what I know about Indonesia now, if I was in the same situation, I'd probably be a little bit more concerned. You know, I'd probably be pulling the police guy down, put him as a shield next to the window. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: But there wasn't ever that feeling. I remember being sworn out on the way in. You know, people putting their fingers—that's it. what Indonesian fans do. It was intimidating without being scary. It was just like you say when the goal went in. There was that. There's that. My oh God, this is unbelievable. This is this is on another level. This is just. It's almost like you're trying to remember everything that goes on because you know how
1: important and how
2: significant it is.
1: Um, yeah, um, so for me, uh, it didn't affect me at all. I think maybe you're right about the na- naivety. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed, I enjoyed it. it. Yeah, like
2: I, I enjoyed it. I, I really, I really, happy.
1: if I'm going to be honest, yeah, really enjoyed it. Like and it, it, like you said, maybe, maybe again, we're all naive because we haven't been in that situation up until that point. And you know, when you see the likes sort of. Um, uh, Omid Mid Nazari, has obviously gone out there and experienced what it's like when 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 you know yeah. f- fans start to kick off, and I, I yeah, saw yeah. him shortly after because he came back to the Philippines. So you know, again, if we if we'd have known yeah. um, how perhaps volatile that that scenario could be and how dangerous it could be, I mean, really dangerous, then we perhaps would have a- acted in a different way. But at the time, I, um, I can I can remember looking at people, like obviously looking into people's eyes. You know, they're on like. Uh, you know, lampposts and stuff. So they're at eye level, a lot of these people, or they're on people's shoulders, whatever. You can look into that and you you see the hatred. Yeah. But thinking it's amazing. Like, I guess, it's a weird, it's a weird sensation. I I guess for for me, it's like, you can't have it both ways. You can't, you can't be in the Philippines and be like, oh God, I really wish we had more fans. I really wish we had a level of passion and enthusiasm for the game. And then when you're confronted with it, they go, oh, I, I didn't sign up for this. You know, you can't have it both ways. So, now, for me, I, I really enjoyed it and thrived off it, and well, I got sent off, so maybe a bit too much. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think it, it's something kind of again. You, you mentioned it; it's something that I've, I've strived for since, and you know, I've been back there since with, with the national team, and it hasn't been as mm. hasn't been that that way since. Um, you know, mate, you, you probably w- wanted it to be at that level, but not at the sort of the intimidation factor. We'd probably need to, you know, go yes. down a, a couple of notches, but. Um, now, I, I just well, off your question, Jing. Like for me personally, like it wasn't. It wasn't intimidating in a in a sense of where you were scared. It was more, I, I guess, something that would create this atmosphere of, okay, we're in a significant game here. We need to make sure we're on our metal because if we're not, we're going to get embarrassed and you don't want 80,000 people, you know, hyped up and energized um, off, off the back of a poor performance. So you knew that the magnitude of the game at that point and knowing that we had to put in a, a performance, you know, worthy of the, worthy yeah. of the stage.
2: And, I, and there was no pressure on us either. I mean, I think Jimmy's mentioned it a couple of times that, he went into the game just to enjoy it. We weren't even supposed to be at that level. No one, uh, no one ever thought we could be at that level. So there was no pressure on us. We could go and lose 5-0 and turn around and go, that was just unbelievable. That was an amazing experience. There was yeah. never any pressure on us to go in at that level. Everything was on them. And their fans made them pressured. And, and I've talked to some of the boys who we played against. The, the player of the tournament, Firma and for Indonesia, I signed him at Bayankara because of what he did against us. He was quality against us mm. in that tournament. I had him with us a couple of times and had some, you know, on, on long bus rides, had some discussions with him about that game. And he remembers it to be one of his great memories with Indonesia as well, just because of the noise. He said, even the final didn't quite reach that, that, that same level of, of hysteria. Mm. Um, I've, I've chatted to the goal scorer Gonzalez a few times. He just has his habit of scoring against me. I can't, I cannot stop mm. him scoring against me. I'm glad he's retired now because I'm just fed up of it. Mm. Um, i I got on there's a there's a with me anyway, there's a similar bond with a lot of those players that played with in Indonesia in that game. They remember me from that game, and we still talk about it and I'll see them and there's that 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 little nod oh that's someone from the Philippines I remember hey how are you doing and they'll come and give me a high five or whatever more so than other players would um but it was i mean it was incredibly surreal and it was just so enjoyable it was so addictive and so emotional that there wasn't any fear there wasn't any any um worry that we might not win or we might you know what's going to happen here it it was just this roller coaster that i think all of us just thrived off Mm -hmm. and 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 dreamt of And, and like you're saying to be at that level and to be in front of so many people and 450 million people watching it live on I mean, it's just horrific numbers incredible that we were at that level so to enjoy that and to 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 kind of thrive off it was and we still went back and would play football tennis on the tennis courts and stuff like that. You know, Yeah
1: that,
2: that was kind of one of the, the great things about us is that we could go back and be a team again and just enjoy being around each other and, and we could get to that high and then just drop back to being us again. It was it was a surreal time. It really was. And there's so many things that have come out of specifically those two games um, that I'll take away personally that I'll remember. Again, for the rest of my life,
0: the game was special for me too obviously I, I lived in Indonesia for for eight years, so that game I was really looking forward to that. I kept a close eye on it and it was it, it needed to be a beautiful goal for us to lose. I felt like yeah, it was just so hard to break us down during that time, and like there was no shame in going out that way you know if it was that kind of goal it 's like you just had a That kind of atmosphere, it's like, wow. Yeah. It was still lucky, uh... though, Jing. It was still lucky. (laughs) If if you
2: watch the video back, he tried to get on it
0: first, and Rob blocked it
2: with his shin. It hits his shin. It it could go anywhere, but it sat beautifully for him to just connect with it and stick it in the top corner. That could have gone to his right, to his left. It could have gone through to Neil. You know, that could have gone... It hit his shin. It could have gone anywhere, but I... You know, would we would we have gone on from that? Would we have taken points in that game if that hadn't gone in the back? We might have taken a point and hung on for it. But um, I I don't actually think the scoreline really has any real bearing on how I remember and how I enjoy that period. You know, to get to the final, okay, that that would have been nice. But those games were will will live with me for the rest of life. And and you know, the score was the fact that Chris got sent off in the last ten minutes. it didn't matter. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't about that. It was just an incredible achievement. And, a, and it's something that every single member of that squad should be incredibly proud of for the rest of their lives.
0: And I think the entire footballing community in the Philippines uh, suddenly could stand up and be proud of themselves, that they, you know, they love this sport, they enjoy this sport. And now it's something to be proud of. You guys come home, everybody's a hero. All of a sudden, you know, you're getting recognized, whereas football was in the dark prior to that and a lot of us were thinking, All right, here's a whole new chapter, Simon McMenemy at the helm. This team is gonna go places, and then there's this curve in the road. This fork happens and all of a sudden it's it's not Simon McMenemy who's gonna be leading us down this journey, which came as a huge shock to all of us. I'm sure it was a shock to you. And Raymond Torres here on Facebook is asking how did that how was that handled? How was that entire experience for you? Obviously, that must have been, uh, you know, a curveball for you—something that you didn't expect, given the result and how things transpired in the Suzuki Cup.
2: Yeah, I, you know, the one negative, I guess, about it was how it was handled. It wasn't. People have to make decisions, and and in football. Sometimes people have to make really difficult decisions. And, and like I've mentioned with Simon and Chris earlier, you know, that was, I look back and that was a difficult decision. I should have handled that better. Um, the decision to release me from the national team, you know, I, I got the job out of nothing. I got the job over Facebook, probably at a point where I shouldn't have got it based on my CV. Um, so to have it taken away from me in the same fashion, I shouldn't really be surprised. That doesn't make it hurt any less. Um, I think it's just one of those things. You know, I, I was I was told that at the time uh what we'd done had kind of brought light to to what was going on in the Philippines and, and football in the Philippines. And that the German Football Federation had offered upwards of five million pounds worth of or five million euros worth of assistance in training camps and, and access and, and this and that and blah blah blah. But in order to have that their only requirement was to have a German national team head coach. Um, and on leaving, I was, there was something was alluding to that. I knew things weren't quite, there wasn't a, a contract extension. My my contract was up until, I think it was, it was only for another couple of months, but based on what we'd done, I, I was kind of thinking, well, I'm going to get a contract extension at the very least out of this. Um, but, you know, the way that my leaving was handled was it, it really went back to the early days of me going into offices and, and speaking to people and thinking, what on earth is going on? Is this a national team or is this a circus? Is this a w what what is going on here? It it wasn't a decision. And and I, I will never be Upset about the decision because at the end of the day, 5 million euros or me as head coach, you know, I'm I'm not arrogant enough to think that just because we've won a couple of games, I'm the next Jose Mourinho. If someone offers 5 million euros and so much support and assistance for the national team, it's going to cost me the job. That's the professional decision. I don't have a problem with that. That, that's, That's the reality. I would have liked a little bit more respect, thought, you know, I, I found out I was lying in bed. I woke up in the morning and my phone went and I looked across at the phone and it was Rick Olivierres, um, a guy who used to be involved with the media side of football. And he messaged me and he said, Dan Palami's is about to do a live press conference on um, the head coach of the national team. I thought, right, OK. And he said, if you go on Facebook, I'll type what he says live on TV. So I sat on Facebook and it's funnily enough and kind of ironic that it's back on Facebook that I find out about losing the job when I got the job off there in the first place. But um, yeah, Rick starts typing what Dan Polanyi saying and he's, he's saying that I don't have the qualifications to, to keep the job going and in order to, to sustain the momentum that the, the Azcars have, have now created, we need to bring in a, uh, a national team head coach who has previous experience and, and current qualifications I mean, that was never true because we were constantly in touch with AFC and, and FIFA um, and I had explained to them the situation and we had the head of their uh, coaching department coming back to me saying that it was never going to be an issue and that um, my, uh, they would work with me to get me to the point. They didn't want to chop down a young coach who'd done well. They wanted to work with him to try and promote him. So there would never be a point where my lack of having the right qualification would... Uh, cost me the job. They were more, more than happy to provide opportunities for me to get that qualification in the fact that I already showed that I could do the job. So, um, that that wasn't quite a truth on the part of the the PFF to be to be putting that across as the reasoning. And um, it, it was just a it was a money decision. And and again, for me, it was the right decision. I, I can't honestly say I was worth five million euros at that point. So, given where the Azkals have got to since then. M- must have been the right decision. Um, how it was handled, yeah, would have liked to have done. But I mean, I, I, I had quite a strong falling out with Dan Palami after that, mainly because of I lived in one of Dan Palami's houses. Um, and a lot of my stuff, I think I was on the plane home with Chris, actually. We got back to the UK around about the same sort of time. And you were asking when I'd come back out. And I was saying, I, I don't know, probably late January, have had some time at home or whatever. And a lot of my belongings were still in Dan's house, so when I got told, right, you're not a national team coach anymore, I was like, okay, fair enough. Well, will you just pack up all my stuff that's in your house? Yeah, yeah, yeah no problem, no problem. And this went on for seven, eight, nine, ten months. Um, and I didn't get anything back until I actually moved to Indonesia. So I'd already been to Vietnam, got sacked in Vietnam, moved on to Indonesia, and then a package arrived in Indonesia a year and, a year and two months later. And it had like one shoe in it and a pair of pants and like one sock. <laughs> that, that was what was left of my stuff because people had been into the house and just raided it and just taken all my possessions and helped themselves to my clothes. Um, my bonus, I was given a couple of hundred dollars bonus for getting to the, the semifinals of the Suzuki Cup and I went out and bought like a limited pair of Nike Air Jordans. And they were immaculate in a box. Uh, and I saw them once, put them in the cupboard, and I never saw them again. And that was my bonus from, from Suzuki Cup. That got taken. Someone's got them. I don't know. But that just left a real sour taste in my mouth, you know, that, that given all of the highs that we'd been to and, and where Philippine football was, and there was now this Azcal brand that was going forward and blah, 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 that the only thing I got out of it really was... From back from Dan as as a form of gratitude was um, a box sent to me a year and a year and a bit later with one shoe a sock and a pair of pants in it, um, which was a little bit disappointing. Um, but such is life. These uh, I don't think Dan was particularly well versed in, in how to run a national team. I think he he very much is now, given experience and especially being at that level and and handling people at, at a higher level, but. But at that point, yeah, that was a real disappointment to me that those sort of little personal things happened that kind of let the side down a little
0: bit, you know? Mm. Wow. That's incredible to year actually. It must have been... What was that like then shortly <laughs> after you come back to the Philippines? You're involved in club football, Morocco Global. There's a thing there. There's a bit of there. What's it like seeing Dan Palami... On the sidelines? What are those conversations like?
2: Well, um, by that time, I'd had a, a lot more experiences in professional football. I'd, I'd been through a lot more ups and downs. I'd kind of been sacked once or twice. And, you know, I've been to Indonesia and found it difficult and won games and lost games and dealt with difficult people and difficult owners and, and arrogance and stupidity and, and whatever. You know, I, I'd had a fair few more experiences by that time. So to then come back and deal with Dan, to be honest, um, I made the conscious decision, irrespective of what my wife was saying, she was ready to kill him. Um, irrespective of what Sarah was saying, I just made the conscious decision just to be professional about it. And just, there was a lot of pressure on me coming back because I was the original ASCALs coach. Um, so to come back to club football, then, uh, you know, I, I felt a lot of pressure coming even there wasn't that many fans. There was a lot of people expecting me to be something, so walking in as the head coach back into Manila and stepping into the job, Moralco, I thought, you know what? Probably better I bite my tongue, don't say a word, don't really speak about how it was done and what happened and just get down to being a professional football coach and, and try and, if anything, take the
0: uh, take the, the high road, if you like. Did you enjoy the experience coming back? handling all the Morocco Sparks and being uh, part of the UFL and all that? It was difficult. I mean, it, it, was,
2: it was hard because there were so many frustrations and, and so many things that you just wouldn't find in other leagues. Um, coaching Morocco for, for for the length of time I did it was problematic. You know, you, you, when you've got a team made up of you know, 50 60% British Filipinos and then one or two British guys that I bring in. Um, if you're working with locals, culturally, uh, uh, local Indonesians, local Philippines, they don't really come back at you with too much. They don't offer too much of an opinion. There's a, there's a, a saving face kind of thing that they don't want to challenge you. The confrontation's not a thing. But we Brits love a little confrontation. So working with a team at that level who are not scared of saying exactly what they think, you know, you're trying to handle a lot more egos in that dressing room than, than I've ever handled in... Indonesia, you're trying to keep a balance Um, everybody thinking that they knew how to do things, what we should be doing, when we should be doing them Um, and quite happily open to saying that too so trying to keep that and trying to work with what we had to try and challenge the likes of Ceres and Global and I hated the Kaya games, I just hated them they they were made so personal um, and I really disliked them mainly because of this man sitting here as well.
1: Is but, it because uh, we always used to win? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Look, we've been nice up until this point. Let's, let's not drag it down now, okay? Let's, let's, <laughs> let's keep it nice.
1: I, now, I can I, still I, see Adam Mitter pulling, <laughs> pulling his tractor, trying to chase, chase people back. But,
2: you, know, he's, you know he's in Indonesia now. You know, he's just like, I,
1: know, oh, I know, I know. I, I spoke to him the other day. I messaged him about his attire because it was a disgrace. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was wearing some very fanciful gear. Um, spray so, on yeah, jeans. yeah. Spray on, very, jeans. Yeah. very spray on. I thought they were, they were like uh, cycling shorts and uh, compression <laughs> socks. That's what I called them. But anyway, no, no. I, I mean, I, I, I feel, I feel your, I feel where you're coming from. Obviously, my, my experience is very different. With, 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 Kyra, I, I would, I transitioned from being a player to a coach through the process of being a player coach as well. So yeah. it kind of, and then you know we went in and we won, we won the cup with me as player coach. So you're you, you talking about earlier on about credibility. You, yeah, know, yeah. you already have a level of credibility, I suppose, because I've been at the club for, for a period of time. I've been well established. My position within the hierarchy of the club was quite high anyway, obviously with the academy. So I had other sort of um, elevated roles and aspects within the club. That sort of gave me a. I was probably I wasn't going in as just a normal coach. I'd or, or already kind of established myself as um, as as being someone in a sort of more elevated position, even though I was a player at the time. Then when you go into winning competitions quite early, we did well in AFC Cup, etc. I think it. I think it was. It was. It was. It was easy in a sense because a, a lot of those players I'd even played alongside. So you kind of know the intricacies of the of the dynamic of the group without having to sort of step into it. And so I, I was very much eyes open. Uh, I had other, other other difficulties from you because it was, I would still treat people as a player. So I would berate a, a, a member a member of the playing staff as I would, as if I was a teammate, which yeah. I struggled with at, at the beginning. But, you know, I'm looking at your gr- group that you had at Moralco. I mean, it was a very talented group, but I think there were, you know, like you said, the, the, it, and I think I, I see it a lot with other clubs, actually. I, I, your, your club was maybe more vocal in how they would maybe challenge or maybe how they would um, perhaps openly discuss, discuss being a nice term of putting it, discuss mm-hmm. you know, uh, aspects of play or tactics or, or whatever, um, which I think is commonplace in the UK. I mean, you, you, as, you as a player would, would have probably done that in, in, and, and it'd be forgotten about. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, once the session is over, you know, it, there's definitely that it is is a bit more sort of uh, freedom of expression, certainly amongst um, yeah. you know people who grown up in the UK. But I, I, what I found quite difficult, I don't know if you you experienced this. Was I'm sort of long winded way of coming onto my question, is I fa- I found a lot of it was more behind the back it was more you know you present your session or you present your tactics you go into you have a game plan you did implement the game plan in the game if it didn't quite work out you know it might be a phone call on the monday with oh no the boys didn't agree with the tactics or didn't agree with the setup or didn't agree with this or that yeah uh, that was something that i found quite um quite difficult because obviously there, there isn't that confrontation level like i'm not saying that i would prefer to have it one way or another i'm just saying that the dynamic was different with me having um, perhaps a different makeup and composition of, of of the group. Is that something that you experienced in in Indonesia, like with with some of the other clubs or Vietnam, or other countries that you coached in? Is it is it more a case no. of, or, or do you think it's just more they they won't say anything, they just get on with the job in hand, and they just get on with it and um, on.
2: yeah, they uh, Indonesians won't they won't offer an opinion because there are so many there are so many guys who will just chop them down and they will listen to that opinion and go you don't know what you're talking about and we'll take it we'll hold it against them for pretty much as long as they're in football so they won't offer too much of an opinion they'll just go yeah yeah okay they'll go and play the way they think that they want that you want them to play they'll win or lose you'll get sacked and go and they won't say anything more about it they won't bosses won't often ask local players their opinions they might pull kind of ex national team players and there's one or two who are quite happy to well, for various reasons. Um, you know, the, the, I mentioned earlier that I got sacked in Indonesia the first time. Um, one thing I learned after that was that I was signed for a... I signed for a club there. They brought in a lot of ex-national team players. They signed um, a leader. I won't say which specific position, but they signed a leader who was brought in and he would only sign if, he, if we, the club signed two of his friends. Now, he had agreement with these two guys coming in, that every time they played, they would pay him part of their salary. Now, when, he, when we were playing, these two guys I didn't think were good enough, so I didn't play them. So he wasn't getting his extra money from these two guys. And in which case, he was in the ear of the owner all of the time, blah, 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 Simon can't do this, these lost the dressing rooms. We were third in the league at the time. I had Marcus Bent playing up front. We had quite a good team. We were looking quite sharp. We're doing well. It was the first year that that team had been kind of promoted and in the, in, um, the top league. And all of a sudden, I get called into an office and sacked. And I'm where the hell does this come from? Oh, we think you've lost the players and you could be getting more out of the team. We're sitting third at the time. This is halfway through the season. And I, this has only been explained to me since, where the manager and the owner have since taken me out for dinner and apologised for the whole situation in that they listened to a player instead of over me. And this happens... Guys in Indonesian football, there's a lot more ways to kind of get things out of the game. Either finance, power um, moves. You know, you keep a, you, you, I've had discussions with various members of my staff about players within my team. That I think, why is he doing that today against his old team? He doesn't normally do that. Why would he? Why would he head the ball up in the air instead of heading it that way? He just doesn't. He never does that. Yet today, he's doing it. So there's all these other factors in Indonesian football that aren't present in Philippines football, whereas, whereas there's always a, I think there's a paranoia working here that you notice things and there's always a reason why that happens. In the Philippines, it's just more than anything, it's opinion. I think mm. with the Moralco guys, you had Phil, you had James. I mean, they're guys that have a, they have a whiteboard in their room to jot down ideas about football. They're that tuned in to, to trying to get football better. And you had a lot of outside influences, you know, guys like Jason De Jong. That, that I know Jason very well. When he first signed for Moralco, I said I didn't want him to sign. I didn't, I didn't want Jason at Moralco because I know he's quite. he takes a lot to, to manage him. I said, oh, Jason, I'm really sorry, mate. I don't want to sign you. I've got, you know, I just don't want this to happen. And in the end, you know, I said, well, okay, it's going to happen, but I'm telling you, your, your leash is that long, that long. The first bit of problem I get, I'm sorry, you've got to go, all right, sorry, yeah, no problem. And I didn't have a problem with Jason. Not at all in the time I was with, at Moralco. There was just all these... There's a lot of opinion and egos in, those dress, in the dressing room at Moralco. And because it was more personal, maybe didn't feel as professional as maybe other parts of the world that some of these players had been in, they felt that it was okay to just share those opinions and get them out in the open. And, and you know, um, we had a good group. We had a good group, we had a talented group. There's some really good players in there, both both local based players and, and guys that come from abroad. But, um, you know, I think when you have a team like Ceres, you're never really going to compete with the financial muscle that Ceres can, can offer. It was just always a, an uphill task trying to knock them off their perch um, and continues to be so.
0: After that, it's back to Indonesia for you, right? Um... And then it, 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 you, you got your vindication, you got your moment where you can let everybody know that, you know, perhaps they, they, they made a mistake in letting you go earlier. And then you move on into the national team job. That's the dream job. Um, obviously, you know, unfortunately, didn't pan out the way you'd hoped. And now here we are, um, yeah. quarantined in Chicago <laughs> and yeah. um, looking ahead right? I mean, um, you said that you're, you're interested in, in moving towards a place where perhaps you know the, all the outside factors don't really play a part anymore. Um, it's more about just focusing on the game and, and being able to perform at the best possible manner. Um, is it still in Asia? Is it still in Southeast Asia? What are you looking at?
2: Um, I, I've said this to a lot of people, and a lot of people have said, you know, where, what's your goal? Where do you, you want to, what's your aim? And when you've been through something like what we went through with the AsCars in in 2010, you know, it, it really is unfair because it, it kind of takes that away from you quite early on. I mean, the the opportunity to just do, do that again, to to repeat something I've already done, would for most people be seen as a dream, and and to have already done that and have that in the back pocket, it it, it kind of warps you a little bit. It, it's like well. Yeah, I know what being a national team coach is like now, and and I've I've had the highs of the Philippines and I've had the lows of Indonesia. It was an incredibly difficult job and, and very political and and you know, but with the Indonesian job, you know what you know what you're doing when you sign a contract. You know what's going to happen if things go badly. You know you're going to get battered, so you can't turn around and be surprised by it. I would like to go to a place. I'd like to go to a more established league where that is. Um, it's part of the enjoyment for me that I I could literally go to any country in the world and be able to speak and communicate because I think football is, is a language that allows that you may not be able to actually speak the local language, but you can talk football. You can, you can coach, you can, you can have relationships, you can enjoy your time there. And I think that's one of the the very, I'm very lucky in that my chosen profession, I, I say chosen, we've just established that it wasn't chosen, that it was a little bit of luck involved, but the the, the profession that I have allows me to do that and allows me to just take on board so many different cultures, so many different experiences, uh, so much travel. I, I've, I've seen more than most Premier League managers will ever see in their whole career, and, and I feel very, very blessed for it. Um, and I only hope it prepares me well for, for the next big job, hopefully when the next job comes around.
1: Do you, do, do you see that as changing um, with time? Obviously, you've got... Uh... You know, a young family now. So it is. It, it's, it's when when I first think about your time with the national team. You know, you like you said, i will just right away, Sarah, I'm off, I'm leaving. Uh, yeah, just have a quick conversation and then shed a few tears. But ultimately, I'm going, I'm to go. Like you can't do that anymore. You know, you, there are other <laughs> factors that you that you need to that you need to weigh up. Like I mean, I, I I talk about this with my wife all the time, and and we we sort of we struggle with this. And this is sort of coming back to what we were talking about earlier about your. What 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 the intentions are with you? Like how how much of a factor does that play into making decisions now? Uh, you know, because obviously you've got to think about potentially where Hunter's going to go to school. You know, is my yes. wife going to be able to assimilate? Yes. You know, it's all well and good wanting to go to you know some uh, Uzbekistan top flight club for example but is it going to be somewhere where your wife's going to be comfortable is there an international school where my kid can go to like how much how much of a factor are all these things going to play do you think as you move forward with with this or is it something you're not really giving much of a thought to no it's a big it's a big factor
2: it's a a huge factor you know and 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 i've said that my sanctuary is being able to come home if my wife's not happy when when i get home then you know it, it kind of throws everything out it doesn't work this is one thing I have learned in the journey and experience I have had over the last 10 years is that, um, you know, nothing is truer than happy wife, happy life, because this is a team effort. I couldn't go through what I go through and have put up with the stuff I put up with and experience the things that I have if I didn't have that ability to come home and have someone who understood it and was able to make me forget it and comfort me to the point where, okay, now I'm motivated to go out tomorrow and go and do it again. Um, I, couldn't, I, I genuinely couldn't have, have ridden this roller coaster over the last 10 years without her sitting next to me. And I, and I don't mean that in a soppy, love my wife kind of way. I'm just simply saying is that it, in order to have that level of composure and compartmentalization, oh, compartmentalization putting things to one side and dealing with it, I need to have someone there next to me who's just got her arm on my shoulder saying, all right, we're going to do this. Let's go and play with Hunter. She knows when to take my mind off it. She knows when to chill me out. I can't do it any other way. I find it incredibly difficult to do it on my own. Um, I'd have probably gone home a long time ago. And I think going forward, yeah, you're right. Now now, hunters in the world, it's like there's a little egg timer being been turned over. You know, there's, there's a point where he's going to need to grow roots. And it might mean now that we have to pick a spot in the world where those two are going to stay. And it's me that does the commute back and forwards to a job. You know, I, I, unfortunately, we can't always pick and choose where the interest comes from. And you just, you know, evaluate whether that's the right move for you. And I've turned down a lot. I've turned down Pakistan national team. I was offered the Liberia national team. I've been offered Africa quite a few times. Um, More recently, I've turned down India. Um, We we were very close to accepting in South Africa and going to the South African Premier League. But the guy there said, right, you need to find a house. It needs to have a panic room. And my first thought was, "Why why does it need a panic room? We so, say, well, all houses in South Africa have panic rooms. Yeah, but why does it need a panic room? And being a football coach, obviously you're away for every second weekend for three to four days at a time. Now, would I be concentrating on the job when I know my wife's at home in a house that has to have a panic room? It doesn't matter whether it's being used. It's the fact it has to have a panic room. That was enough for me to think, Do you know what? Um, that's probably not the right job for me right now. Um, maybe as a single guy it would have been different, or maybe if they were located somewhere and I was travelling to South Africa for the job... It might be a bit different, but yeah, it it plays a massive, massive role. It's not, obviously my job leads the way and is the main provider for the family, but my wife is, football has played a massive part in in pretty much every decision I've ever made. And choosing the person that I want to spend my life with, um, football played a big part in that. You know, I I had to negotiate getting married into my contract in Vietnam because they didn't want to let me go. And I said to them, "Look, I'm going home. This is when I'm getting married. It's already organised. No, no, you can't said, Well, This is going to happen. I was. I left the game after kickoff, flew home, got married. Day later, got back on the plane uh, and arrived ten minutes late for the next kickoff. To which I was fined for being late and going home to get married. It's just this is the life. Unfortunately, that you know there are there are pluses like we've just explained for the last two hours or for how long we've been talking, mm-hmm. and there are. There are there are the the negatives, and sometimes you know you have to work hard to make sure those negatives don't affect your home life. You've got to keep your home life in check because there are lots of coaches and lots of coaches I've met and and guys I would call kind of role models or mentors, you like, if you like, who have three, four, five marriages because they just can't deal with football is is their main priority and they they can't balance their private life for whatever reason. Um, so. It's incredibly important to me, and it's, I'm aware of it. Every time a new job comes up, I sit down and discuss it with Sarah. Sarah, do you think this is a go? Is this something you'd like to look into? Yeah, I think we can make a life there. Okay, we'll proceed. Let's let's chat to the agent and see if it's any further down the line. Um, I, I can't stress how important that is.
1: I think it's something that is really underappreciated within our industry. Uh, is is the spouses, the girlfriends? Um, who who have to support um their their partners? You know, I I a lot of my sort of close friends have done the circuit back in the UK, you know, and and that was difficult. You know, you go in from club to club, um, you know, are you going to have a contract this this summer? Are you going to be out of contract? Can we go on holiday? Cut the holiday short because you got to go back sign a contract. You know, and you only have a one month window where you can potentially do these things because the other eleven months of the year you're in season, yeah, um, you know. And I would see these kids move from school to school trying to make new friends at a new school. And, and ultimately, yeah, then, then they have to make those tough decisions. Do I keep my kids at a location and I just commute back and forth? or then you're spending four hours in a car every day, driving to and from training, which again takes its toll. Do you move away? Do you go and stay in a hotel uh, for three, four nights a week, you know, yeah. while your wife and kids are at home? That's also takes its toll. I think, I think quite the family lives back in Spain whilst he's in, he's in, he's in Manchester on his own. Um, you know, I think it's an incredible um, person who's able to sort of withstand those types of pressures because not only are they obviously living vicariously through their partner, especially as a coach, where you're probably getting vilified for half the time and then all the adulation for the other half the time, if you're lucky. Um, And then that sort of uncertainty of whether, you know, is he going to be in a job next week? Have you had a bad loss? Are you going to get fired? And if you do get fired, you know, where's where's the next paycheck going to come come from? Uh, I'm gonna have to move to a country where I don't speak the language. You know, who's, who's gonna be my who's going be my friend? You know, we gonna go, go out yeah. for drinks. With. All of these things are so are so difficult. And I think one of the things that I I, I picked up on when I went and did my A license um, last year was the amount of people who who, who were either divorced mm. or who are still single and in their you know 30s 40s. Um, you don't see their kids very often, or they live independently from their kids, and I think that's a real. I think that's really difficult. I think that's really tough. And I, and I think and it's not just on the coach. You know, I think we're very we're very insular when we talk about football. And, and I think football is a very selfish game. And you talk about these, you, you see these coaches. But what about the kid who grows up where he only sees his dad, you know, a couple of times a month? You know, yeah. what about the wife who has to deal with, you know, being at home without... And that's something I struggle with a lot. Yeah. Um, scares the hell you know, out of I struggle me. with that.
2: It really scares the hell out of me. It, it's the one thing that I... I'm very aware of and, you know, we, we tried for seven years to have Hunter and we went through the ups and downs of everything, miscarriages, that the whole lot without wanting to bore you with it Um, and ended up IVF in in Manila and he came out first time from the IVF treatment. Now, we worked so hard to get him on this planet. Um, I'm very aware of the fact that my job is very time intensive. It, It takes me away for long amounts of time and the year he was born was the year we won the league. Now, things were going so well, I didn't want to disrupt what was happening. When I signed for Bayankara, it was a club based in Surabaya, which is an hour-of-hour's flight from Jakarta. We settled in Surabaya, bought our house, got everything settled. She found a hospital, found her OBGYN, got everything settled with the doctor. She became pregnant enough that she couldn't fly anymore, and then the club moved to Jakarta. So I had to move. So all of this time that, that we're settling and getting things ready... Now I have to move to another city and I got a little apartment in Jakarta and I was giving the boys, I was giving them the day off and then making us train at four o'clock in the afternoon so that I could fly home early in the morning, have the day at home, have the next morning, fly back at lunchtime and be home for training in time. I say home, back to Jakarta for training. And I was doing that every other week for a year, but I didn't want to disrupt what was going on either with Sarah and her pregnancy, but also the team was winning and eventually we ended up winning the league, you know, so... It, that sacrifice that year was certainly worth it from my own point of view. Was it difficult? Yeah. Little man was born and then two days later I've got to go back to Jakarta for a week to go and train the boys and play a game and then I'm I'm flying home as quick as I can to come and spend time and then I'm, I've am i got 24 hours and I'm back on a plane again and I must have, the amount of miles I must have, have flown during that year just back and forwards. Every time I had time I was on a plane backwards and forwards. Um, it, it's an incredible sacrifice and, and I think the more professional, the more time you put into it, the more research you do, the more like we're talking about looking at set pieces and and analysis, the more time you do, the more time you spend away from your family. And it's the key. I think that I've kind of worked out is trying to get that balance, but sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's saying no to football stuff. And and that's, you kind of think, well, I'm being paid to do this job and I'm out here and I'm I'm living a great life. I've got a nice house with a pool and blah, blah, blah. But I can't do that because I've, Going to spend time with little man. I really want to spend time with little man, but I know I've got a job to do. I've got preparation to do. I've got to get this ready for blah blah blah. And, it, and it's, you're right. I think a lot of people in football kind of put their relationships second and football first. Maybe some would argue that's what needs to happen for you to be successful. And uh, maybe again, naively, I think I can do both. But I, I'm not going to sacrifice family for football. I just won't do it. Um, my family has sacrificed a lot when when I first, when I took the Philippines job. And Sarah burst into tears. She, at the time, was earning way more than I've ever earned before. Um, My whole time in the Philippines, that eight months I was with the Philippines, I got paid $6,000 for eight months' work. That's my full salary that ever came from from the Philippines. She ended up giving up her job and following me out to Vietnam. When she arrived in Vietnam, two weeks later, I got sacked. And we waited out in Vietnam for my next contract in Indonesia. And as we're sitting in in Indonesia and... Uh, sorry, in Vietnam, we had to move to a smaller apartment. Hunter wasn't around by then. But the day I signed in Indonesia, and, and I hand on heart, the day I signed in Indonesia, I had less than $20 in my bank account, um, which was massively naive and just would never, ever let myself get into that situation. I got home before that ever happened. But at that point, that was that was the... That was what was needed to be done. The agent kept telling me it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Twenty dollars left between us in my bank account, and she'd only just arrived two weeks. She didn't actually ever see me work in Vietnam. She arrived, I got sacked, and then we moved to Indonesia. But you know, she's 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 put herself through the mill just as much as I have, and and the support she gives me, and and the belief that I can go out. I mean, she would fight my battles. She would. I have to calm her down from some of the things she wants to put on social media sometimes. But that's that's the sort of person she is she's is fiercely loyal um and you know I've said it before I say it again I, I just couldn't do this roller coaster I couldn't I couldn't live through the ups and downs of football uh without her supporting me
1: Jing, I think that's um that's a nice way to bring this back full circle um you know I think we started off with, with talking about all of the um you know, ups and downs of, of, of Simon's career. And, um, you know, went through the quite ludicrous way in which he obtained (laughs) the job and the ludicrous way in which he's lost it. But I think one of the overarching themes of actually most of the last two conversations that we've had is the importance that that sort of family plays in, in this, in this crazy industry that we're all in. And, um, you know, without the support of them, then, you know, we're all, we're all nothing really. And, and that's the, they're the reasons why we do what we do. And, they're the ones that give us the energy to, you know, to go the extra mile in, in, in the jobs that we do. So um, Definitely. I think that was a really Definitely. nice way to, um, to sort of get to the next part of the interview. I don't know if you answered all, asked all those questions, Jing.
0: Yep, um, yep, pretty much. There a, was only one, one last remaining. It was just from Rich Lacey, who's asking if Chris Great, which drove you crazy as a player trying to tell you who to play where and what tactics to employ. That's
2: the only one left. Um, no, Chris. Chris, when he came in, was uh, uh, God, it's difficult for me to say this when I'm looking at his face. You can but, say, um, it. you can say. It. Yeah, I know. He was. I'm he waiting. was a bit. He was a bit of a godsend, I have to say, because at that point, like I was saying, we we put a very simple game plan in place, and we put a lot of emphasis on one single guy in that in that row of midfielders, that row of defence, that the strikers organising their lines. And the fact that, realistically, when I came in, that team for 2010 had Neil and Goal, English-educated, uh, Rob, centre-back, an English, classic English centre-back, you in midfield, English-based, English-speaking, English-mentality, Phil working up front with Ian, English-mentality. Again, that made it very easy for me to come in translate my points across and then you translated them into everybody else. So they got double the message for everybody. So the the fact that I, I made that decision to, to bring up with side, I know science probably going to message me now and call me all the names under the sun, but, um, you know, I, I, he's doing very well for himself these days, but, um, you know, it was, it, it was a split second decision and, and it, it really worked out and, uh, uh, I'm very thankful I made a, a call. And it went that way.
1: Uh, Rich Lacey, by the way, was my PE teacher at school. And, uh, oh, and is he, it, he, it, Yeah, yeah. So, talking about fortuitous. He was he was a guy who got me my trial at Brighton, so I, I owe him I owe him a lot, actually. Um yeah, good good guy, even if he is a bit uh snidey with his line of questioning. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I don't know, anything clever. else, Jing? Anything else you want to bring up, Jing?
0: No, that was it. Two and a half hours. Thank you for spending the time with us and, and taking us down memory lane and being so unbelievably open about all the experiences that you had, you know, prior to the Philippines, after the Philippines, how things ended and where you're at right now. And, um, you know, I'm just wishing you the best for what's next in store. And I hope that somebody gives you back your Jordans. You deserve those Jordans. <laughs> they should send it to
2: well, if you see them, they're probably around Dan's house somewhere. I don't know. I don't, I don't even remember what they look like these days. I had so much stuff nicked from me. I don't know. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. All
0: right. Well, thank you for spending the time. We appreciate it. And uh, thank you to everybody who tuned in over Facebook Live. Um, don't forget to subscribe to Across the Line on our on our. Uh, Facebook page. Uh, make sure that you are also uh, subscribed to us on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Coach Simon McMenemy, thank you so much.
2: You're very welcome, Dean. Thanks for having me, pal. And thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Cheers.